Consequence Podcast Network. The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I am Jen Adams. I'm Lara Unterstall. And I'm Mike Snoonian. We are continuing our theme of covering PTSD during the month of October. Uh, we've already talked about how we see it in The Descent, and that episode is available right now. Um, in that episode, we kind of gave an overview of PTSD. We kind of, I think we called it PTSD 101, um, where we just kind of talk about the basics of what it is. Um, today, and Mike, you're probably going to know a little bit more about this, but I think we're going to go a little bit deeper and talk about how PTSD will affect future yeah. relationships that's, down the road. That's that's the hope. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I am so excited about the movies that we're talking about this week, guys, because they are some of my all-time favorites. Um, we are talking about Sidney Prescott in Scream 1, 2, and 3. And we're looking at how trauma affects her life over the course of several years. And this is going to be a little bit of an experiment for us. Um, and we kind of, it started as we just kind of, like, I wanted to talk about Scream 2. And Mike, I think you want to talk about Scream 3. And Laura, you suggested the first one. And so we were like, we want to talk about all of it. Um, so we are really going to stick with Sydney. There are going to be some things like we're not going to talk about a lot of the plot points or some of the other characters. Um, we may talk about them down the road, but we're going to really try to stick to Sydney today. And I think it's an interesting like way of looking at this over the course of time and how she relates to different characters. So I'm kind of excited to see um, how how that shakes out. <laughs> um, so we are going to be talking about all of these movies back to front. So uh, here's your spoiler warning right now. Um, Wee-oo. Sorry, I'll stop. <laughs> Wee-oo. <laughs> so if you haven't seen Scream or you haven't seen it in a while or you're like me and you just love to talk about it so much that uh, you could talk about it forever, um, we have written, Laura's written a delightful synopsis of Sydney's arc. Um, and we know this is a lot of the story um, and we really want to focus on Sydney. So we know there are some things we're not going to go into detail on, um, but I definitely want to give a shout out to Stu's sweater. <laughs> and how delightful it I find is him. The most <laughs> <That's> 90s, <laughs> like, it could only oh. exist in 90, like that sweater could only exist in like a 14 month period between like 1995 Christmas season and this January mm. 1997. And after that, it disappeared into the ether and was never seen again. <laughs> I bought my high school boyfriend that sweater in different colors for like <laughs> the couple of years that we were together for Christmas and birthday. You were just trying to manifest yes. the reality that you wanted around you. <laughs> I know. He was a non-killer though, which was That's good. good. Oops, spoilers. It's, it's, like, it's a good bar to have for boyfriends. <laughs> it is. Not be a murderer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a good um, start. <laughs> um, Anyways, so Laura has written a synopsis uh, about Sydney in Scream 1 through 3. So take it away, please, Laura. Yes. 
So over the course of Scream 1 through 3, our hero Sidney Prescott goes through a lot. What follows is an abbreviated timeline. At the dawn, I want to do the the Fargo <laughs> thing, like the <laughs> inter. I can't say it, so I'll it up. Okay. and I, to me, this feels like like Law and Order opening or something. Right, dun dun. <laughs> yeah. There are a host of specialists, and they investigate special crimes. Okay, anyway, right. <laughs> moving on. Scream VU, you know. Yes, like <laughs> that was the dun dun, but with screams. Okay, Should okay, I just, okay. Like, <laughs> in the background right now, while this goes on. <laughs> Yes, yes, please. please we'll just do, we'll, yes. we'll have to cut all of that. <laughs> all right, I'm I'm launching into it. At the dawn of Scream, Sydney is a high school student in the small town of Woodsboro and is coming up on the one year anniversary of the day her mother was murdered. She witnessed the aftermath of the murder and believes she saw the murderer himself, Cotton Weary, her mom's secret lover. Her testimony put him behind bars. Because the alleged murderer is locked up, Sydney's leering boyfriend, Billy Loomis, insists she should be over it. This is just about when folks start getting stabbed to death left and right, and Sydney realizes the masked killer is after her, too. As it's eventually revealed, the, killo- the, the killer is none other than Billy, aided by his unhinged pal, Stu. He's motivated by his slut-shaming belief that Sydney's mother destroyed his family by seducing his father. With the help of Lieutenant Dewey and Sydney's frenemy reporter Gail Weathers, Sydney takes down the killers, proving herself to be a budding badass. In Scream 2, Sydney's in college, and despite the fact that Billy and Stu are dead, the killings begin again. The whole cast of characters is. Did I sufficiently menace with that? Again! I think it was pretty menacing. Whole- <laughs> okay. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, Bobby Newport's never had a job in his life. <laughs> Just in case you weren't sufficiently menaced. Okay, so in Scream 2, Sydney's in college, and despite the fact that Billy and Stu are dead, the killings begin again. I hurt my throat a little bit. The whole cast of characters is brought together once more as they try to figure out who is behind the copycat murders. Sydney is repeatedly terrorized and loses her friend Randy to the killer, cementing an idea in her mind, everyone who cares about her dies. At the end of the day, it's another killer duo, and the brains of the operation belong to Billy's grief-crazed mother. Shades of Mrs. Voorhees, anyone? Sydney once again demonstrates her total badassery, and this time takes down the killers with a little help from Cotton Weary and, as always, Gail Weathers. Unfortunately, she loses her blue-eyed boyfriend in the process, one more for the guilt tab. In Scream 3, Sydney is living in hiding. She keeps everyone at an arm's length, having internalized the idea that she's a dangerous person to know. Because it's a Scream movie, the killings begin once more, this time playing not by sequel rules, but by final installment in a trilogy rules. After more characters get killed, including one of the actors on Stab 3, and then the killer calls Sydney at home, Sydney comes to L.A. to talk to the police. She learns more about her mother's checkered past, and here I will have to resist going on a sidebar about the dialogue around her mother's behavior, and how it's especially ironic considering these movies are a Miramax production, and how maybe the movie doesn't totally interrogate this, but moving on. Mm-hmm. In the end, after being exposed to yet more assault and reminders of her mother's murdy, mur- <laughs> murder, <laughs> murder, Sydney confronts the killer. The man behind the mask this time is Sid's half-brother, Roman, the director of Stab 3 and someone who has never really dealt with his childhood abandonment issues. Having been rejected by his mother, he declares that he decided to take vengeance on the daughter who did get her love, Sydney. 
He admits he talked Billy into the killings and was the puppet master all along, a horror filmmaker with an auteur's eye for detail. But as always, he has met his match in Sydney, who just pretty much totally kicks his ass and then kills him. At the end of the trilogy, Sydney is finally able to let go of the fear that's plagued her and return to some form of normalcy, living with Dewey and Gale. Aww. And McDreamy, too. I think oh, that's right. McDreamy's there, there in the sling. I forgot about McDreamy. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Ah, yeah, I mean, he's not one of the core three. It's I love how you wrote that. And I have loved I don't know if I've ever watched these three movies back to back like I mm-hmm. did. Um, but focusing because there's so much that I love about these movies that I think distract from Sydney and her narrative, you know, um, like just talking about the rules mm-hmm. and the way like the meta aspect yeah. of it. So like just hearing all of that laid out, I think really I love just looking at Sydney and how all of this affected her. And that's something that I don't think I'd ever really focused she on. She is when you look at the four movies that are out to date. She is the best final girl. Yeah, she is. She's it's, my favorite. She's tough yeah. as nails. I really do. I kind of like fell in love with her watching them back to back like this. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. unlike any other yeah. series, like the movies aren't about Ghostface. The movies are about Sydney. That's what right. they're about. And I think that's why it's my favorite franchise. Yeah, because you the know? killers are really human in this franchise. Unlike uh, every everything else, every slasher franchise is about this sort of omnipotent figure and what it represents as this sort of primal fear. Uh-huh. In these movies, mm-hmm. it really is just about people doing shitty things to each other. And yeah, that's obviously rooted in the meta-ness. But when you can look beyond the meta-ness, it becomes like actually a really compelling story. And I think that's what makes this franchise thrive, really. Yeah, and us really connect to it. Well, and so let's kind of, I think we're kind of moving into our feelings check-in. Um, so uh, we think it's really important to talk about how we feel um, because feelings are really slippery and it's easy to kind of misidentify and repress. Um, and I think we could all be more in touch with how we're feeling every day. So let's go around and talk about our first experiences with these movies and how we feel when we watch them. Um, Mike, what was your first experience with these um, movies? So- this came out, I believe it was Christmas night, 1996. And there's mm-hmm. like a long-standing tradition of going to movies on Christmas night. This would have been, you got back home from seeing the family. I was in like my first apartment with friends and like we all worked together and we would just, we like basically lived at the movie theaters. Um, so this would have been, if I remember correctly, Christmas night. We were excited to see it. Like, obviously, it was Wes Craven or, like, A Nightmare on Elm Street and Last House on the Left and, um, you know, People Under the Stairs. Like, this is going to be awesome. And it was. Like, this easily became... I think, really, like, this movie is what rejuvenated my love of horror overall Um, because I don't think that it's um, improper to say that, like, the mid-'90s aren't always the best time for horror overall. There's a lot of good movies but it also hit kind of a rut. Um, Halloween, yeah. Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, they were a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They were all dead by then. And I don't think Halloween as we know it now still exists if it's not for Scream um, and the success of this movie. This really gave the horror genre like a real shot in the arm. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we obviously we recognized ourselves in characters like Randy. Um, I absolutely fell in love with Rose McGowan in this movie to the point where I even bought The Doom Generation, another movie (laughs) she was in, which is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. 
I don't even think I was able to finish it, to be honest. Um, but, like, absolutely, like, adored her as Tatum in this movie. But, like, this really, I think I saw it, like, a half dozen times in theaters. I remember taking my younger sister to see it, who's a big scaredy cat. And, like, during the <laughs> principal scene, like, right before he opens a closet door, I, like, grabbed her. And she screamed so loud that the theater, like, burst out laughing. So I love those moments yeah. of somebody freaking mm-hmm. the fuck out in a theater and everybody laughing. <laughs> I I don't think there's a bad movie in the four. I think three of them you could are great movies. One of them is an all-time classic. Mm-hmm. I think even my least favorite of the bunch is still a fun watch. Um and I would mm-hmm. say aside from A Nightmare on Elm Street, this is probably would go down as my favorite series. And so help me God if they kill Cindy and scream five. <laughs> I will tear my own yep. skin off in no. public. Like I will just. I know. Mm-hmm. Not cool. Yeah. They can't. They can't. They yeah. wouldn't. Could they? They? Yeah. they better not. Let's just say they better not. Not not my Sydney. Not in yeah. my movie. Um, <laughs> Laura, what was your first experience with these movies? So I think I saw the first scream probably around when it came out on VHS. But I was a little too young. To totally appreciate it, I think I was either 11 or 12 years old at that point. Um, Also, I, at that point, was not a horror hound like I am now in my mid-30s, so I couldn't really appreciate the satire, and I was just a little too freaked out by the stabbings to get into the series when it was still in its heyday in the late 90s. It took me a while to get... It's funny because Nightmare on Elm Street is the series that made me probably get really into horror um, when I was a little older. Like, it it fully pushed me into being like, okay, I'm going to watch anything and everything for the most part now. And so it was only a matter of time that I came back into the warm embrace of Wes Craven. Um, Watching um, these movies now, as someone who has seen, like, all the damn horror movies, I think I, you know, I really appreciate it a lot more. The franchise is really clever and funny. Um, The movies are just super fun to watch, so those kind of comedic elements keep them feeling really light despite the constant murders and trauma that like when you examine Mm -hmm. on paper is really pretty bad. Um, And -hmm. I just ended up like loving really re-falling in love with this ensemble and Sydney and especially like Gail and Dewey. I think it's great that David Arquette and uh, Courtney Cox met on the set because you can, I mean, they have chemistry like nothing else and Mm -hmm. the whole, the whole ensemble you can just tell they, they really feel like they like each other and are having fun. And it's really mm-hmm. an, an infectious thing to watch. It is. And I think you can tell in that that they keep coming back. Like what other franchises like this do you have that core cast yeah. that keeps returning? Exactly. You know, even like for because they're all signed on for five now, too, which is what, 20, 24 years mm-hmm. later, I think. Um, I do. I love this. This is in my top five. Scream is. um and I was similar, like I was not really super into horror, although I was really obsessed with Stephen King, but not necessarily horror movies. Um, and I wasn't really that into slashers. And then I have this really clear memory of walking into the theater to see this movie when it came out. And I had just gotten my driver's license and I was 16. So I was like the same age as these characters. And I just fell in love with it. Um, 
and I got the I remember I took the VHSs of all of these to college um, I don't have a clear memory of going to see two and three in the theaters although I'm sure that I did but what I do have a memory of is listening to the soundtracks over and over and over again and when I I swear to God when I pushed play on Scream 2 and I heard that song like I think it's She's Always in My Hair start to play like I almost started crying because it was just this huge wave of nostalgia you know this is this was just a good a not necessarily a good time in my life but this was a good side of that time in my life you know and I just I just love them so much and I love Sydney in particular she is my favorite final girl um and yeah I the third one I like a lot um, it is my least favorite of the four. Same. But like I just and I tweeted this the other day, like even the worst scream movie is still a fucking scream movie and it's still amazing. Still super fun and to watch. You know, I have more more yeah. criticisms for that one than any of the others, but it's still a delight. Yeah, it is. It's just quirky, you know? And it's I know yeah. we're gonna talk mostly about Sydney, but I think at some point I would like to address like why Scream Three was what it was like why the tone was yeah. so why it was such a tonal shift um behind the scenes um to your point and just like yeah. i want to address like west craven aside from like john carpenter i don't know of like a modern horror director whose influence who wields so much influence because look we love cronenberg we love george romero but i would say that they don't have like the commercial success that a carpenter at his peak and a Wes Craven did. Yeah. Wes Craven in, in 1973 releases Last House on the Left. And it sets the stage for these political but personal horror movies that are extreme horror, that are really in your face and really confrontational, but also smart as hell. And mm-hmm. he sets the tone for a lot of the 1970s. And what you're going to see is a step maybe above exploitation films. Um, but still wield an influence. 1984, mm-hmm. he releases A Nightmare on Elm Street, a second classic movie. In, in a decade later, he returns with Scream. Those are three movies, one a decade, that not only are wildly popular, well, I guess it was Last House on the Left, popular for what it was, but commercial mm-hmm. hits that spawned these franchises but also like steer the course of where horror is going to go for the next five mm-hmm. years. Yeah. I adore these movies. And I, I love the, the camaraderie of the cast, the feeling like it felt like we were in these movies. We know, I know we just did a comfort episode not too long ago, but like the scream series is absolutely what I would define as like a comfort horror movie. And it is brutal. Same. Like I know 90 slashers were, tame compared to what you would see in the 80s like they are definitely much tamer scream mm-hmm. is not a tame movie it is a very visceral no. violent movie mm-hmm. and like to what we were talking about how personal it is like this is not a faceless killer like these are people like we find out who the killer is in every mm-hmm. episode and it's always somebody that sydney mm-hmm. knows and trusted um the moment that always makes me cry is in the opening with Drew Barrymore when her mom is listening to her on I the know. phone and she looks at the husband and she says not my daughter and I just burst into tears mm-hmm. every time and it's just a small little moment but it's like there's so much heart in these movies and I think that's what makes them so right. effective and when Drew Barrymore when she pulls off the mask and she for that like last couple seconds like she knows who it is 
and she's shocked mm-hmm. by it. And she knows mm-hmm. why. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there's probably a lot that we could say down the road about Maureen Prescott's arc here and just Stu and Billy in general. And there's, I feel, I feel like there's some incel territory we could talk about. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We're not going to focus on that so much today, except to talk about how it uh, affects Sydney. But like, that is something that I have come to view um, differently over the years and it hasn't lessened the movie like I feel like there are lots of times where I see like 16 Candles man as much as I love that movie there are a lot of great things about it like I just cannot right. watch it the same way and can't get it's hard for me to give it grace and this movie I feel like I can see the age in the language that we use in this movie but I feel like there was an understanding of these characters as human beings there too, yeah. you know, which I think speaks to Wes Craven, you know, and Kevin Williamson too for, you know, the script. Mm-hmm. But so speaking of that, let's move into our mental health issue, which is PTSD. So in our episode on the descent, Mike, you gave kind of a, like a higher level look at PTSD. So if you want more of the basics, um, make sure to go back and check that out if you haven't already. And I think you were going to talk about how it affects relationships right. today. Exactly. right? Exactly. So very quick, like 30 second refresher. Um, we talked about the symptoms of trauma and that included like what we would call triggers which are things that either remind the victim of what happened to them or makes them re-experience the event like it's occurring again in real time. Um, There may be flashbacks or very vivid dreams that pertain specifically to the traumatic event or events. Um, Mostly there can be like this really like blunted affect to the person that it's difficult to sustain positive emotions. It's difficult to think positive thoughts and it's difficult to maintain healthy relationships. So in the case of the screen movies, what you see in the first movie is how Sydney's relationship with Billy traumatizes her for the next film and then continuing on from there. And she comes into the movie already traumatized, obviously from the death of her mother and the media fallout from that. But essentially trauma how it can affect your relationship with a partner, it can be extremely difficult for a person to move forward with a new relationship. Building trust can be much more of an uphill struggle. And there's a term that we use in counseling called transference and countertransference. And we usually refer to that in terms of like the patient-client relationship when a client starts ascribing feeling so their therapist um you're transferring them onto the therapist and counter transference is when we as, as we do and i've been guilty of it when we start bringing our own biases attachments um and experiences and start pushing them onto the client and the best example i can give is of like why is this person handling this situation this way when I know such and such a person has done this, or geez, this client is really hard on their kids and my mom was hard on me and I'm judging them harshly as a parent, things like that in terms of like counter-transferring our own feelings as therapists onto uh, our clients sometimes, which is something that if you, you don't want to do that and you want to take it to supervision. What I'm referring to here in terms of transference is like if you as a traumatized person, if they start seeing a person, someone new, or they engage in a new relationship, 
they may start to ascribe patterns of behavior, emotions, thoughts, and feelings that the person that victimized them did and say that new person is doing this. So if they were in a... <laughs> Once again, Jen and I are looking at each other like, right. no, smile. Feel free to jump yep. in. Um, feel free, by all yeah. means, like, feel free to jump in with your own experiences. But if you have a, uh, a partner that restricted your access to the outside world, meaning maybe they held all the purse strings. So if you wanted money, you would have to go to them and ask, can I have money to go out and maybe they would or wouldn't give it to you, which is a form of financial abuse. And I think we talked about that in our Midsommar-ish episode, the mm. types of um, relationship abuses that exist. Um, they may be overly critical of you in a way that is meant to neg you or to break down your self-esteem or they just might say no you can't go out and if you try to there are going to be consequences um and i will just say that like that um from a previous relationship in the past i have definitely it was more in the emotional abuse and breaking down your self-esteem with like negative comments territory and it has been very very hard for me in subsequent relationships to not think that that's what the person is doing when they make an offhand comment. Mm -hmm. There have definitely been times when I was like full-blown triggered and totally misinterpreted something the person was saying to me and like snapped at them. And I felt so, and you know, I quickly realized because I have been in therapy <laughs> extensively, oh, that was what was happening. And like my therapist always phrases it as when you feel like you're having a response that's disproportionate to what's happening you are probably getting triggered and you are probably reliving all the things from your past that remind you of this moment. That was the language she used. She didn't use the word transference, but it sounds like basically the same mm -hmm. concept. Um, and that is something I still trigger with. I still, I still struggle yeah. with. I still trigger with it. Um, <laughs> and it, it is, it is so hard because even when you're intellectually aware that that's what's happening, you still have the same gut instinct knee-jerk reactions to a thing and it is just constant practice to not um like react that way yeah. so mm -hmm. that's my experience Thank yeah you. yeah and and what i and i guess and i think that your therapist is right in terms of using triggered versus transference there i think like they're spot on at that point um a lot of times the transference what you'll do we talked about in trauma how Sometimes we just avoid situations in order to avoid a reaction. So mm -hmm. if you had a partner that like restricted your access or always talked down to you, um, or if you knew they didn't like you to go out and see your friends because they were afraid, like, and look, if you're a person that would abuse someone, you are very afraid of what people on the outside are going to see. Because obviously if you care mm -hmm. about somebody, you're going to have a reaction to that. And you're going to say, like, this person is abusing you. Do you need a place to stay? Can we help? Why are you doing this? Um, and a person that's abusing their partner doesn't want anyone to have any influence over them aside from themselves at that point. So the person who's been victimized and traumatized, when they begin what could be a new and healthy in loving relationship may say 
I'm not going to ask to go see my friends this weekend because I don't want to be told no. I am going to mm-hmm. avoid yeah. topics or conversations or activities that my old partner didn't allow me to do and that I was restricted from or that, to your point, Laura, I might get these really negative offhand comments that are meant to like decimate my sense of self-worth. Um, so in order to avoid those feelings and avoid those emotions, I'm going to change my behavior because really all of our behaviors are based on what we feel how um, or what we think, how that makes us feel and what behavior we trigger out of that. I'm going to adjust my behavior behavior first so I can avoid those thoughts and feelings at that point. So we're transferring that negative energy onto a new partner. Um, Yeah. It can be along those lines that building of intimacy can be extremely difficult because as as someone who's been abused or traumatized, we talked before about the difficulty that can be had in sustaining positive emotions believing that you're worthy of good things believing that you deserve good things or just sustaining things like happiness and empathy and affection it can be very difficult up because those are the cornerstones of any healthy relationship it can be very difficult mm. to build that in a new one so intimacy of all sorts whether it's emotional intimacy physical intimacy or sexual intimacy, they can be difficult to attain. And even in the best of times, they can still act as a trigger to a person that they could be having a very loving and caring moment. And just maybe something reminds them of abuse in the past and it can turn on a dime. Yeah, that is something that Corey and I have really been working hard on for the last Mm -hmm. two years to try to kind of figure out how to not be triggered and not like when I am triggered for him not to kind of take it person or get defensive, you know, cause he didn't do mm-hmm. anything wrong. It's just, this is where we are. Um, and I found like that intimacy is so fucking hard for me. Um, and I find I tend to like, that's when I scroll or that's when I like, I interact with people where there's a screen in between us because it, I have that space to react and not have to, um, let somebody see like my reaction to it before I have a chance to guard that reaction and to make sure it is, what my brain tell or what my past experience tells me is the acceptable reaction to have. Um, and it's, it's really hard. That's, um, something, and I'm glad like when not to get too much into the movie, but I think we see several different like re like partners of Sydney's and Mm -hmm. how they kind of respond to it. Um, but it's, it's just, it, like I will, I've talked about my calendar thing where like it, it really can trigger me to make plans a lot of times. And if I just, even the hint of, Oh, he's going to be mad at me. Um, I will just shut down and I won't. And then I'll like say, Oh yeah, by the way, um, we're recording tomorrow night. And like, it's not a fair thing for me to spring that on him the day before, but I have been so afraid to talk to him about it leading up to that, that it just, mm-hmm. you know, which it just, it creates more anxiety, yeah. but yeah. yeah, not quite the same thing. But for me, like before I had any understanding of like depression and how it affects a person, 
I like, dated a woman for two years, so I thought I was going to marry. Like for the first eighteen months of the relationship, it was pretty awesome, and then she suffered like a really bad depressive episode, and I didn't understand what she was going through. And I remember like I would get upset if she's like, "Yeah, I went to therapy and I talked about us," and be like, "Well, what did I do wrong?" Um, not having like any understanding of like how depression works really in the year 2000 Mm -hmm. um and i remember like how hard it was as like a partner to feel like what am i doing wrong like i why can't i help this person why aren't they happy being with me you know and um Mm -hmm. i think that there's been like a tremendous amount of growth in the past 20 years in terms of like how we perceive mental health and like really like the term depression should at some point should be changed to something else because it really has nothing to do with being sad. Um, and I think that's mm-hmm. the, the, the take I had on it. Uh, mostly had nothing to do with being sad, but like, it's not the, it's, it's a component it's a, of it. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. It's a, the, the it's, origins are different. Mm-hmm. Sad is in response to something. Right. Depression is a state of existence. Right. You know, depression mm-hmm. is basically taking a back a sack of rocks and putting it on your back and then saying, go about your day. Uh, that's what it feels mm-hmm. like to a lot of folks. Yep. Um, so not having an understanding, like I was a shitty partner and not like yelling or screaming, but just like, not understanding and feeling like why is it making it about me at that point so we didn't last oh (laughs) (laughs) well it happens yep it does because that's because you're a human being too you know and that was one of the things like Corey and i've struggled with and i think we're finally kind of turning a corner on that where it's not he triggered me and I like was mad at him for triggering me or like we weren't at each other's throats. We were, I don't know if that's a good way to say that. Like we weren't like against each other. We were fighting the thing together on the same team. And I think we finally got to that point and it was, it's hard because there's no way I can explain to him exactly how it feels. And like, there might be a trigger that he just does not understand and will never understand. And it kind of got to a point when we finally both were like, okay, you don't need to understand exactly what this is. And I don't need to be able to explain it for us just to accept that this is something that we're dealing with right now. And how do we deal with it? You and know? I, th- I think that's so important. I mean, just from my, I am single. So uh, I've had a lot of relationships fall apart on me, but something that I've really taken away from all of that. And I have had to train myself to not think like, oh, it's, it's your fault. It's because it's because I'm a bad person and nobody will ever love me and I'm so toxic and like because those are all my my issues based on both being a very depressed person a person who's struggled with depression and as someone who's had some really negative you know partner choices um just inadvertently ending up with people who really only fed into that those negative self-beliefs that I had um But what I have taken away from all of this is that you really do have to be on the same team. And that is exactly the way you just phrased that is like the number one thing in a relationship is like no matter who you are uh, and no matter what you've been through, you're going to face challenges. And it's just choosing to face them together and not to use use them to turn on each other or say like this is your fault or something that Mm -hmm. you're doing to me or to us. Um, It's all about framing it up in that way in your mind. And it's like. I feel like I, I like I could write a book on relationships right now without being in one. And I'm like, it makes me feel a little like a fraud. Like, but 
I feel like I have a really in-depth understanding of, of it now, but I have right. n- no way to practically apply it. But, you, <laughs> but I think that you have experience being in relationships. Like as long as you're not like, I could write a parent book without being a parent. That, oh no. That right. Will get you like that is what I things. have. I, I mean, if, if I did, I could write the book, but it would be incredibly bad advice. Right. It would be like, <laughs> <You should. laughs> chapter one, condoms are cheaper than children. Chapter two, um, <laughs> Yeah, mm. it would be. It is <laughs> that is true. true. Um, I've heard that. It's, ah. So, ah. is there anything else that you wanted to bring up, Mike, about yeah. GSD the, and the relationships? The big thing is like, there's not a timetable on it. Um, and it's it's yeah, it's really like, there's not a like, if you just do this treatment for this long, it will get better, and then you're all done. Um, mm-hmm. It different persons are traumatized by different things and they will experience them in different ways. And a lot of it ties into some, I I hate using qualifiers like a lot of it, but it could partially tie into like our sense of resiliency overall, which I have in our next session section. We talk about treatment a little bit, Um, but it might be that you are able to cope with things that traumatize you and kind of build up that skill set but that you may never be able to quite get over what it is like that things might always be with you or it could just take a very long time or some people can get through it pretty quickly and find that new bag of tricks that works for them and they're good to go. You know, there's not a one size fits Mm -hmm. all like any mental health issue. There's not a one size fits all. And I imagine that might change in different times in someone's life too. Like I feel like right now we all just have a much lower threshold for like resiliency and getting right. Through things, I mean, we're you know. living in an event where you could say that the world population could be diagnosed with PTSD. Like, <laughs> yeah, if, I've thought uh-huh. about this a lot. It, like we're all right. going through a collective trauma. If I had mm-hmm. a new client right now and I said, "What brings you in?" and they said, "2020." I would just say, right, PTSD. All right, fantastic. Like, that's really, mm-hmm. you know, I say that half yeah. jokingly, but I mean, like, really, the, we're going to yeah. be studying this year that has gone on for five years for generations to come. Yes, we are. Yeah. And I almost tweeted this the other day, but like anybody who watched the presidential debate now knows what it's oh. like to experience emotional Absolutely. abuse. Like, that, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's accurate. exactly what it was like, you know? Yeah, just... And I mean, we joke, but like, that's for real. Like, this is why so many people are triggered, mm-hmm. you know? It's because like, if you, like I've grew up with a narcissist who acts like that all the time. So every time I see I know. that behavior, oh I'm like, ugh. In terms of like, you know, kind of shifting gears a little bit and talking about how do we focus on dealing with our trauma and how do we treat persons? Um, you know, I, I looked at like pro- trauma-informed therapy and what's called progressive trauma growth, resiliency and progressive trauma growth. And that is what the PTG in my notes is, which I'm like, trying to remember. <laughs> I was wondering I about was, that. I was too for a minute. I'm like, oh my God, what if I thought I'd remember the abbreviation? <laughs> Um, But what resiliency is, is one's ability to face, adapt, and overcome adversity. It's partially positive psychology, and it's tied into a couple of what have been identified as like our five core competencies of like social emotional learning, which is something that is developed by an organization called CASEL. So there's five parts of social emotional learning. There are social awareness, there's relationship skills, 
there's responsible decision making and when it comes to like trauma or basically resiliency there's like self-awareness and self-management self-awareness being how in tune are you with your thoughts your feelings and emotions how in tune are you with like the things that you know that trigger you how to in tune are you with things like if this happens this will be my reaction to it um, and then self-management your ability to self-regulate your ability to develop new coping skills your ability to make healthy decisions for yourself and you know in some cases it's a small thing like saying like i have a test tomorrow but my friends want to go to a movie what should i do um, and in some cases mm-hmm. very large things saying like i know that i have a huge presentation tomorrow in front of a group or i have to go to a group therapy session and we're going to talk about some heavy shit. i need to make sure that i get a good night's sleep i need to make sure that i eat well i need to make sure to you know that i'm clean and well dressed so i feel good about myself before i walk out the door those things kind of tie into our how we can our levels of resiliency and our, our levels to cope overall and I will say that those are two of the biggest things that I have learned mm-hmm. through therapy. And that's the reason that I really wanted to have a feelings mm-hmm. check and our uplifting moment at the end, yeah. because I think those have been really critical for me. Same. And I think because I was um, in my day job, I write curriculum and I was writing some SEL lessons for a while. And just kind of watching my daughter, I realized like we don't do a good job of teaching kids how to do mm-hmm. this. And so then they get to be adults and they don't know how to do it. Yeah. They don't know how to identify their feelings. So those things. We incredible. are just this year as a district, we've added like an SEL learning block for like um, middle schoolers. So we're doing like a life skills class that we're using. Mm. And then I, along with another teacher, am doing some social justice lessons that we're giving to kids to do like on their half day. Um, to kind of do on their own and I'm like taking it literally adapting it from like the Black Lives Matter um, curriculum that they've posted for free which you can find which is a really cool resource to have Um, and just one more reason to donate to Black Lives Matter and similar organizations Mm -hmm. because they're Mm -hmm. doing so much labor and then providing that for free and it's like we should have I mean can you imagine how much better society would be right now if Mm -hmm. we had had those resources as children absolutely (laughs) exactly Mm -hmm. so when I was Putting yeah. together my notes here, one of the, the um, things I dug into was like trauma-informed practices for children and adolescents put together by Steele and uh, Macleodi in 2011. And they look specifically at kids in war zones and how they're able to adapt in constructive ways to like the sheer horror that goes on around them. Saying that if you have like a higher level of resiliency, if you're able to cope, instead of coming down with PTSD, you may have simple anxiety and someone might say well that's great anxiety wonderful but anxiety (laughs) can also be like i would say like anxiety is probably easier to deal with than a real ptsd would be overall the two are often comorbid with one another um Mm -hmm. with anxiety it can often be easier to come up with like simple everyday coping skills to kind of help you recognize it understand it adapt to it and overcome it overall or PTSD if it can come from so many different directions or hit you in so many different ways that it's a much kind of harder thing to put back in the sack once it's out um (laughs) some of the kids that they studied displayed a handful of resilient traits 
that allowed them to lessen the severity of their trauma, even if they couldn't avoid it completely. And if they were able to receive like grounded trauma-informed care, they were able to then further develop that resiliency to the point where they could either overcome or manage the trauma that they experienced. And they came up with some very specific, specific characteristics of care for trauma-based um, therapy, especially for children and adolescents. Number one, like these children often benefited from the support of other people, like realizing that they, number one, weren't alone, but they also had like caretakers over there looking for them. They examined their own strengths. And we're going to talk a bit about that, I think, when we get to the feel-good moment. We're going to look at a little bit of like what strength-based therapy is and like how you can kind of do some of it on your own. Um, I have a little worksheet or a little Q&A no. sheet. I, came, I, I love up. a worksheet. Yes, we all love a good I worksheet. Um, <laughs> based on the strength of like what they're good at and like being able to take those skills and transfer them to other areas of your life. And I think I've used this example before, but if you're a really good athlete, what do you do to slow your heart rate down? What do you do to slow your breathing down? What do you do to focus and concentrate? on the athletic field, how do you take that and adapt it to other areas of your life that give you pause? Um, there are benefits for these persons to tell their story, rather they're in, engaged in what we call repressed coping. And that is when you avoid the trauma and try to go about your day as best as you can without thinking about the trauma at all. Like saying like, nope, that's not a part of my life. Um, <laughs> that's almost like it's gonna come out right. at some point yeah, and there's like that kind of ties into like toxic mm -hmm. positivity and no. that kind of but that's mm -hmm. a sidebar for another day mm -hmm. and parts of it also like what are the components of care as providers offering support and offering safety for these persons um helping them with what we would call like sensory cognitive integration which is being aware of the relationship between your mind and body in the moment, what we often call, refer to as mindfulness. Um, mm -hmm. And then going a little bit deeper, exploring one's meaning or one's purpose in life. Like, why are we here? Why am I alive right now? What is my purpose in life? And that gets more into existential therapy or Gestaltian therapy, which we'll cover at a different day because that's a whole other... <laughs> thing um it's a whole other bag of yeah, archetypes it is <laughs> um helping these children that have been traumatized to display compassion and display empathy for other people and mm -hmm. i will tell you like for persons that have been traumatized it is really hard um i've had a number of sessions with persons where they want everyone to feel for them and what they've experienced and how they've been hurt and they deserve that. They are entitled to that. Mm -hmm. But they, because of what they've experienced, they're not able to turn that outward. And mm -hmm. I've mm -hmm. literally gone back and forth with persons who have been like, what you're asking for right now is the inverse of what you talked about last week when someone came to you with something similar. Do you see how that mm -hmm. affects other people? And it's so hard to make that correlation. Um, and that's specifically yeah. in like a younger population, yeah. childhood and adolescent. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, this is obviously a really extreme example and it's probably not, you know, hopefully what you're not dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis, but like uh, serial killers 
who are interviewed later in life will often talk about their own very abusive childhoods. And, you know, they, they say that there's that like a series of things that lead into the serial killer soup and it's very complicated, but mm-hmm. often it involves abuse, mm-hmm. um, head trauma, um, and, and, and it manifests in, in not being able to experience empathy, but they will still tell their own sob story and want people to really understand them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, I think, when I was younger, what I found really compelling about a lot of serial killers was that that dichotomy. Um, yeah. I don't have a deeper thought than no. that. Uh, that was where no, that was where the thought ended. It's a fascinating. <laughs> I mean, like, let's face it, like it's a fascinating study. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, yeah. Well, and that's something that I've kind of experienced too, not to the extent of serial killers, but that because for so long I was not able to respond and to say how much this hurt. Um, And I was just constantly because I grew up with a narcissist and like I had to really like everything went into what his what what he was feeling and empathizing with him so that I could like survive emotionally. And so then when we start like when Corey and I started couples counseling and he's fantastic and I love him. But there were parts there were times when I was like, I don't want to fucking have to think about how you feel about this thing. I am tired of having to think about how everybody else thinks. I want to just mm-hmm. think about how I think. And that was like that. I I understand what you're saying. Like, that's not a way to go forward. But like, I had to be able to say that and he had to hear it for us to kind of get mm-hmm. past it. It's like, that's, it's just, it's hard to, it's just hard to extend that when you haven't right. gotten it. And you feel like this, like this, um, I don't know what the word is like there there's a debt that you feel inside and it's just like I'm not going to get that filled by the person who actually needs Mm -hmm. to fill it you know and so Mm -hmm. and so not wanting to like take it from other people is is been a struggle you know totally understandable and I think like there's a that's a difference between like always looking out for someone else's needs and then never having your own met and then finally kind of hitting a breaking point versus never being able to see anyone else's point of view and never being able to see someone else's you know and there's a reason why we often ask children like how would you feel if you know Mm -hmm. and we kind of play that game and we kind of tease it out of children you know and i put the note in here that when you're trying to display compassion and empathy for others doing it through like role play and coaching um Mm -hmm. and you know the difference between role play and coaching role play is you just kind of act it out and do it coaching is like you set like what i would call like a smart goal which is like specific it's measurable it's (laughs) achievable realistic and time bound Um, i've worked in corporate uh, america for too long there you go anyway i'm sorry not a problem sorry but i got triggered that's all right um (laughs) but being able like we do that because there's a big push in what we do now to like give me the results you know like don't just tell me you're Mm -hmm. seeing this person once a week and they're talking through what they're doing but like where are the actual results and what this which makes they, sense they make you give they get make you give metrics yes for emotional health okay oh, yeah. once again corporate america yeah. is poisoning everything Absolutely. okay uh, i'm sorry i'm just having a little bit of a reaction here well i'll say where it's helpful yeah. like where i will use like measures and i know like i have a situation right now where like tomorrow i'll be doing redoing what i would call like a symptom screener with a, a client because I want to see how much they've degressed because of a specific situation versus where they come in and where they're at. So we can say, this is the next thing that you need right now. And it may go above and beyond what I can provide. It can also be like checking in, being like, okay, we're six months in. Let's see where you're at now versus where you were six months Mm -hmm. ago. And it's emotional science. It's an emotional health. So it's not an exact science, but 
you know, when you use some of these symptom screeners, you can see where there's improvement. And then that gives myself and my client an opportunity to sit down and say, like, where do you want to go from here? Like, what is it that you came into work on versus what you feel you want to work on now? And how are we going to do that? Um, because it can sometimes, you know, sometimes therapy is just sitting there and letting someone like unload for 45 mm -hmm. minutes and then they leave and they feel better for a little bit. But did we give them anything to like? Mm -hmm. So Yeah, that was my Wednesday. And I get like when all of this went down, like I went through a period where I was it, it felt like like trauma of the mm -hmm. week kind of thing where like this is this is the thing we just need to stabilize. And then I got to a point where I was like, OK, but I need to be working on the underlying yeah. things and I'm mm -hmm. ready to to move yeah. forward with that. But I mean, when it's like those Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm -hmm. like you've got to be in a stable yeah. place to start working on something. I just had a really neat thing happen with a client where we were talking about a thing that can often disturb them and they were describing it it was right at the end of the session i'm like okay great you know we have to end today we're going to pick up but just, well, I just want i just want to say before i go that like that thing we were just talking about when we were doing that like i was at an eight in terms of like my heartbeat and sweating and like how i felt and they had never done that before like said like oh here's where i am just discussing this it's a huge moment. And then I said, that's awesome. Get the hell out. Because um, we're done. <laughs> no, I said, okay, great. We're going to mm -hmm. take a couple minutes right now. And we are going to like bring you back down to like a more manageable level. And we did some de-escalation and some mindfulness. It was really cool to see them like using things that we had talked about um, in a way that was really helpful. You feel like I made a difference today as opposed to every other fucking day. Um, <laughs> all right. Yeah. I think I've gotten everything I wanted out that I think is like super important. Um, let's talk okay. some fucking movies. Dude, yeah. So let's talk about like how we see a lot of this play out specifically in these movies. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I think we're going to try to stay in order, but I mean, it's going to end up. Who knows? Getting, we'll try. It we'll is. try. Yeah. So um, there were a couple of things like I just kind of listed some stuff based on the movies that I saw. And a couple of the things that I noticed throughout is that she is really triggered and re-traumatized by the media. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that is the biggest event that we're going to talk about, but that was one of the things that really stood out right away because we start with her mother has died a year ago. And as soon as these murders happen, the, the media is there. And she sees herself on the news and she's hearing, like, people just talk about this extremely traumatic thing that's happened to her as just, like, this is a thing that happened today, you know? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's definitely a theme that runs through the movies. And it's, you know, inextricably tied to the meta-ness of the movies mm -hmm. they're they're commenting on our culture's fascination with murder and crime and true crime and then also how that's reflected in horror films so mm -hmm. i think it's but it what makes it another it's just one more thing that makes these movies good mm -hmm. is that it works both on that level and then it also works on just a character and narrative level um you you mm -hmm. feel for sydney and you understand why she pun repeatedly punches Gail Weathers, even though I Gail, Gail ends up being great, really. But um, yeah, I think it, and it's, and it's something we're seeing right yeah. now happening so much. You know, it's it's a very, I think, uh, relevant discussion. It's something that, yeah, in terms of like the culpability of 
media in terms of like how it informs us and how it traumatizes us and how it influences us. It's something that was pervasive throughout his work. Um, it's something yes. that he explored deeply in, in New Nightmare. Um, yep. And in terms of like, what is the influence of horror movies on the youth? And is it is, it, is this what creates killers? Is this what creates evil in society? Um, and throughout the Scream series, we look at the influence of media. I mean, like you have a whole series of movies based on a fictional movie within it. Yeah, and then, I, I love that. I think that's probably one of the funniest right. elements in these movies are the stamp movies. And, and Scream yes. 4 was probably about five years ahead of its time in terms of the toxic influence of influencer influencer culture on society <laughs> mm-hmm. where like people are famous for being famous or people will kind of just shill anything in order to get views. And I think that movie, it's really getting like a, because at the time, even I, and I love that movie now, it's kind of like, it's good. I'm glad it exists, but yeah. Um, and that was so for someone that like adored the series, seeing it now is like, man, this movie was really way ahead of like it had so much to say about where we're going as a culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to go too far down that road again because I know we want to stick to Sydney. Um, well, the the thing that's interesting about this, and again, we just said we want to stick to Sydney, but Gail represents so much mm-hmm. of that, and she is like. A beloved character and there in a lot of ways she is she's not my favorite character but I love her almost as much as I love Sydney Mm -hmm. but she is like the moment where she has that gotcha interview with Cotton uh, in Scream 2 I just every time I watch that I'm like man that is such a Mm -hmm. it's a dick thing to do and like how traumatic would that be for her to suddenly see this guy up in your face Mm -hmm. like you know that exactly whether and you know he didn't now that you know he didn't kill your mother but it's going to be so tied up in the event of Sydney's mother's death and her own feelings mm-hmm. of guilt over having, you know, testified against him and, and how that's all just tied together. Like she is like she mm-hmm. and she she really can't exist safely in any public space without eyeballs on her with and, and every mm-hmm. whisper and every look her way is kind of a trigger or a, a reminder mm-hmm. of her trauma. And that's I mean, that sucks. <laughs> yeah sucks. well like when you see like the sorority girls like you know they only want her in the sorority so that they can claim that they right. have sydney press the sorority of every 90s actress that ever mm-hmm. existed <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. speaking of like mike's crushes we talked off air about one of my <laughs> twitter crushes um oh yeah and it's like like young women mike would push a grandmother down the stairs just to <laughs> just to smell their hair you know like absolutely. is it rebecca, rebecca gayhart had, had amazing hair so beautiful oh Sarah gosh Michelle Geller. the noxema girl hmm. and i will say portia de rossi i love mm-hmm. i read her book unbearable lightness about her eating disorder and it made me really love her yeah also every mm-hmm. 90s actor ever is in this movie i, I remember laura you i was like us. i was it was like every time one came up on screen because it had been so long since i watched especially scream mm-hmm. 2 i don't think i've ever i think i've seen, seen it once before i never rewatched it until for now and i was like oh my god oh my god and then the, the soundtrack mm-hmm. uh it's like yeah. got so many mm-hmm. 90s hits and I, I literally was having just like palpitations of the 90s in my chest and like... did you know who's in the background of that sorority party scene it's, it's Stu. Stu. what yeah, yeah. Oh, i know i can't ever find him but apparently he's there, he's there. yeah yeah, there's the moment where Jerry O'Connell jumps over the fence and all of a sudden Jerry O'Connell's in the I movie. I know, the fact like, that I think, the, I think that was where I had a small stroke is as soon as Jerry Con- O'Connell popped up, I'm like, there are too many, 
90s actors in this movie and I can't handle it. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And speaking of Jerry O'Connell, so maybe we can move into kind of her relationship with Billy and then her relationship with Derek right. and then with McDreamy. Because I do kind of love how we see this progression. I mean, because she's pulling a lot of hotties for starters. She, that's <laughs> well, she's true. She's a fucking yeah. gamble. I mean, yes. I mean, you know? they're t- nothing yeah. but tens. Right. Um, but the, mm. so, yeah, I think, I think her, her relationship with Derek. Uh, Jerry O'Connell is so informed by her relationship mm-hmm. with Billy and he's he's very much the opposite of everything Billy was in terms of just being like the golden boy mm-hmm. um but mm-hmm. it's it's really depressing and, and upsetting the way that that plays out in in the second yeah. installment for her because you know it, it comes down to her not being able to trust fully in the relationship um Whereas mm-hmm. I think the average college-aged person could have really gone whole hog into a relationship like that and believed what he was saying on the face of what he was saying. But for Sydney, she's always waiting for the other mm-hmm. shoe to drop. She can't fully mm-hmm. invest, and that ends up playing out really tragically in the second movie. Yeah. And I think that's a very real thing that people, especially if your abuser was the person you were in a relationship mm-hmm. with, that is definitely going to happen. And if you look at the way that Billy and Derek respond to her trauma. One of the things that makes me love Derek so much is when she breaks up with him and she says, I just, I can't do this right now. He says, okay. And he's upset about it and he's allowed Mm -hmm. to be upset about it, but he doesn't like Billy's like acting like he's entitled to her love because because he wants it, you know, and Derek, I love how he just kind of accepts that. And I remember every time I watch that, I think that sucks. But I mean, that's a reality mm-hmm. sometimes. Sometimes it just is not going to work out because where we are right now. Look at Billy's. And I remember saying to a young woman once who I really liked. And then we ended up dating soon thereafter. We were just hanging out. She's like, I just I can't like boys right now. I've just started to go. I'm like, OK, well, <laughs> when you like boys again, I would like to be the boy you like. Um, mm-hmm. I totally live my life like a 1990s Jawbreaker song. Um, <laughs> thank you, Blake Schwarzenbacker. I love you so much. Um, uh, we'll have to have a sidebar about Jawbreaker. Oh my God, but, I, love so <laughs> I do love them. Um, look at Billy's introduction. Almost a year to the day that someone broke into their house and murdered her mother, he crawls in through her open window. It's despicable. I've never thought yeah, I mean, about yeah, that. Now that you say that, that is the perfect mm-hmm. encapsulation. And in hindsight, knowing that he was the killer, it was probably very intentional. Mm-hmm. But if he had just been a dipshit boyfriend, mm-hmm. like how fucking clueless yeah. that would have made him. Right. And that's why I love Derek so much, because I feel like it would have been so easy for them to just have that kind of college boy reaction. Like, yeah, this is this makes me really angry and I'm going to take that anger out on you. And I read... Because the Scream 2 production, I think a lot of the script got leaked. And so they were very, very secretive about like only releasing certain uh, pages to whoever was going to say the lines like right ahead of time. And I know there were originally different mm-hmm. killers planned and I, I don't know who it was. And if listeners, if you do know, let me know. But like, I got to think Derek was in conversation to be a killer. And there are times, like, I think they all played yeah. their roles as if they may have been the mm-hmm. killer. And there are times when you see him, um, you see him like kind of especially like after he's gotten his arm cut like he's almost kind of playing as if he's he's hiding this part of himself and I'm so glad that they did not make him the killer in the second movie because I think it opens this element of she could have trusted him but she didn't 
feel comfortable doing that. You know, or he was trustworthy, yeah. but she was not able to give that trust. And I just love that element of it because it's so, I feel like it's so true to it's life. It's very true to life and it, and it creates great dramatic tension and heartbreak and as far as the narrative goes. But it's like, it, it is kind of proof on some level, like the, the, the depressive part of me wants to think like, well, that was your one chance and you blew it or whatever. But I think yeah. that the more enlightened side of my mind sees it as like, no, love is possible for Sydney or for someone who has mm. been traumatized and betrayed mm-hmm. in the past. Like there are people out there that you can trust. You just, in, in the case of this movie, he just, you know, gets stabbed to death while tied to a crucifix. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. What do we yeah. think of Derek's serenading her in the cafeteria? I don't know how I feel about I mean, I wish he would stick to one key, mm-hmm. but that's the uh, music. <laughs> that's the music teacher in me. Um, I I do think it's sweet, but like I do not like that kind no. of attention. No. Uh, and Sydney is not the kind of person that wants that kind of attention. attention. I once like serenaded mm-hmm. a young woman in sixth grade to. I was in sixth grade too at the time. Um, serenaded her to. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. Yes, to Van Hagar's <laughs> like, why can't this be love and. Oh. It was not a love connection, friends. It did not. But like he's like walking in people's mashed potatoes and like Yeah. In IRL, everyone would just be furious I, and just be like, shut the absolutely, fuck up. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like there's that like she has to respond or there there's that pressure to respond in the right way because yes, there's an audience great. there. That's a really yeah, good which way. Is like, that's what they are holding back someone hostage. He kisses him. Yeah, like it's like exactly. doing performative marriage proposals. Like you feel like obligated. Yes. To, like you can't say no to this. Um, right. And she had already made her feelings clear mm-hmm. about it. And she's like, what are you doing at this table? Yeah. You know? Um, so, yeah, I guess now that you bring that up, it is, it is a little, little inconsistent for his character. I guess you could chalk it up to being uh, immature or just being in college. But he, at the end of the day, he... Um, I don't know, he gets better, yeah. I guess, within the span does, of like a yeah. day in the narrative of the movie, but he ends up not being a yeah. total dickhead. He does, and I feel like he gives her the space that she asks for and that I think he can kind of mm-hmm. see that she needs. How you do know? you feel others treat Sydney in the first movie? And I guess I'm referring to like the space after Drew Barrymore's death when she's called into the principal's office and there's the sheriff there, and the principal is there, and even Tatum kind of treat her like something that's going to break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. eggshells. Mm-hmm. And I think that's it. Sort of parallels our conversation about the descent when Sarah's yeah. character comes into the cabin for the first time, and people don't really know how to treat her. I think you're seeing a similar dynamic mm-hmm. play out at that in the first Scream movie. Yeah. What stuck out to me in the first one this time was I feel like there's a difference in them talking about her in that way like oh we want to make sure we're not triggering her while she's in the room and them talking to her Mm -hmm. about that like we want to make sure you're comfortable like are you comfortable Mm -hmm. right now not like hey Dewey do you think she's comfortable she's sitting right there but we want to you know yeah it sort of dehumanizes her makes her feel like like obviously she's fragile instead of checking Mm -hmm. in with her as a person Right. And I say that like I always want to kind of give grace because this was in the 90s. And I like 
I don't want to excuse it, but I do want, I don't want to say, like, I'm not giving scream shit for that. Yeah. I'm saying this is, this is a way we thought about it then. And let's talk about it because we're, we're past that now, but we can't. And we talked about this a little bit before we started recording. Like we need to call these things out in a way that is not accusatory or like, like I'm not, again, I'm not giving shit or scream Mm -hmm. shit because it's one of my all time favorite movies, but this is how we grow. And this is how we acknowledge that. This is a step down the road, and we've taken right. three more steps now. And if we don't forget those early steps, we're going to go it's back. It's why so. I don't like the phrase problematic when it comes to examining media from previous generations, that where there might be different sensibilities. Mm-hmm. Hey, well, this is like problematic now. It's like, eh, it's different sensibilities. It can offer a signpost to here is the progress that we've made along the way to hopefully being more formed when we talk about these issues. It's not problematic. Yeah. It's prog-matic. prog-matic. It's prog-rotten, <laughs> depending on the sound. Prog- Prog-rotten. <laughs> yeah. um, and I also want to say, too, like just in general, it's not that that thing has become mm-hmm. problematic now. It's that we are now seeing right. the impact. Yeah. You know, like these things were like, it's just that people that were hurt by it can now say it. Exactly. Hurt, I know? think, and I just think it's important to, and I think it's important to be able to have these conversations without feeling like you're shitting on something. Right. Cause I can like, I, right. I can still love a movie or a book or whatever from the eighties. Like I love, I love Stephen King, but every time I've been on the losers club, I will point out <laughs> the weird, I mean, they have a whole section on that show for pound mm-hmm. cake and like, and for, and for mm-hmm. things that he does that are like, whenever he talks about women characters and stuff, I mean, not in every single yep. book, but in a lot of his books, especially in his eighties books, it's like, Oh dude, like you gotta yeah. be kidding me. I mean, I will still, but I, I think it's, it should be safe to have critical, right interrogations of, of media without saying like you're just completely throwing yeah. it out the window you don't throw the baby out right. with the bathwater yeah definitely you know? cocaine right. king versus 2020 king <laughs> two they're two different, two different kings, different kings. Yeah. um jen and larry you were talking a bit about like sydney having to relive the media this trauma within the media like being part of a small town of woodsboro and this probably being the most exciting thing that had ever happened in the town like having to like see that over and over in the media but i also felt like just the constant defense that she had to have of her mom um oh god that that shit really bothers me that scene with tatum Mm -hmm. where they're sitting together and she's like well you know maybe i've heard rumors about your mom sleeping around and i don't think tatum is doesn't really she hints at the issue without maybe knowing but she kind of hints that maybe Sydney's mom brought it on herself. I think, mm-hmm. I think in mm-hmm. our um, synopsis, like Laura, you had mentioned, like shut, slut shaming uh, Maureen Prescott. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I don't. I mean, Billy, do, Billy does it very openly. Mm-hmm. Like it's his whole. Motiv- they do it's it throughout his, the yeah, series. It, it's Billy's whole motivation. But even when you get to three, mm-hmm. when they're examining, like let's look back and examine why Sydney's mom mm-hmm. was the way that she was. I think that. Right. Um. I, I actually wrote notes about this in the other issues we see thing because I didn't mm-hmm. want to get off totally off track with it. But mm-hmm. um, the way they describe it right. in three in Scream Three is probably to me the most problematic yeah. <laughs> element <laughs> yeah. in that movie. Is just like, well, she was assaulted at this Hollywood party, Weinstein style, and, and therefore, uh, and therefore she just sleeps around, and mm-hmm. she's just a big old, right. she's just a big old, mm-hmm. you know, the town town right. slut, you know. And it's like I think that that is. 
on multiple levels an ignorant kind of way to oh, yeah. talk about it Absolutely. and it's and it's yeah. especially for for survivors of sexual assault it's mm-hmm. sort of implying that they brought it on themselves you know and, and it's it's a whole host of stereotypes and sort of a sophomoric mm-hmm. approach to that conversation right. um yeah and, and i and i think it's it is it is related to trauma because sydney's mom went through trauma and then she ended up getting murdered and even in in death she's being shit talked in this way that is really mm-hmm. um unfortunate and and not enlightened i guess right. Uh, it's, I found that, like, I think that that's probably the one element that these movies don't really fully interrogate, but again, Mm -hmm. it was the Mm nineties. So I think it's important for us to interrogate it now. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, and look who made it too. Like, I think there may have been an element of, we can't talk about, I I do wonder in the third movie, if it was like a wink, wink, like aware, self-awareness. Cause you know that everybody has said that there were like everybody in Hollywood knew what the Weinsteins were up to Mm -hmm. Weinsteins, Weinsteins, Mm -hmm. Frank Frankenstein. Right. Um, but you know, it's, so I, I couldn't, especially watching that, like right now I was cringing Mm -hmm. the whole time, (laughs) but yeah. And I'm, I'm just seeing like Sydney have to like relitigate her relationship with her mom, relitigate yeah. her mother's relationship with her father and her family, mm-hmm. and having to kind mm-hmm. of like defend the memory of her mother um, for how they remember yeah. her versus how she's being portrayed by others. And just like the sheer level of exhaustion that has to come with that in any age, let alone being like mm-hmm. a 17 or 18 year old young person. Yeah. And there's no space for even like consider because we don't really learn about that trauma that uh, Maureen had until the third movie. So even if she just was she had a lot of partners like that doesn't mean that she deserved right. to be killed. Right. And she was still Sydney's mother. And I feel like there's just no space mm-hmm. for Sydney to process that mm-hmm. and just think right. like both of these things can be true at the same and, time. And you see and I mean like it's an element of her trauma is that because this because of this she was really reticent to have sex with her boyfriend right. And then she mm-hmm. decides to have sex with her boyfriend. And as soon as she does it turns out he reveals he was the murderer. I mean mm-hmm. can you imagine as someone who really struggled with like exploring their sexuality and who could like when I was much younger like, when I was 17 18 I could barely I was such a fucking like paralyzed nerd mm-hmm. and had so many of my own issues regarding that like I mean just thinking about how that would actually psychologically impact someone at that age like oh that's mm-hmm. horrible right well and I think we start seeing that in the third movie too when we see like I've got some critical critiques of Maureen's ghostly mm-hmm. visage in the mirror but I think that's an interesting like depiction of how that would kind of haunt mm-hmm. Sydney to use I guess the mm-hmm. framework of the movie yeah I agree because I'm sure there's so much guilt about like did she defend her enough and and I we get the feeling that dad is checked out correct like Mm-hmm. I know he's yeah, barely he's, in it. Yeah, like, pretty much. The, the, that he would take as many trips as possible. Like, she knew this is the chain he always stays at because he's always gone. Like, you know, like, because I would say mm-hmm. at 18, like, you're not really aware of your, at that age, you're kind of concerned with your own inner life. Like, you're not really thinking about your parents' lives at that point. So I think even just to be aware that, yep, dad always stays at, like, the Hilton, um, to know that knows that like dad's on the road a lot dad is kind of mm-hmm. checked out it's sydney has really been left to kind of deal with the aftermath of like her mother's death mm-hmm. the, the trial of her murderer her own role in mm-hmm. sending that person so i believe it was like death row 
Um, if I remember correct, he was on death row. Maybe I'm wrong, but maybe I'm adding No, that. I'm not sure. I can't, I can't remember. Sure. I'm having a total okay. blank um, I know it was in jail yeah. for a year. But it's definitely like she has to deal with all of that and then have this like, yes, very attractive, but creepy as fuck boyfriend who yeah. uh-huh. feels entitled to sex and doesn't seem to relate to like he's like a more handsome like we just covered fade to black on my other show he's a more handsome like eric bender from fade to black that can only see movies <laughs> and he can only see life through the lens of movies like people talk about randy being the movie geek in scream randy is not the movie geek like randy's actually pretty well adjusted overall yeah billy only sees his life through the lens of how it pertains to celluloid. Mm-hmm. Every decision and, he makes is informed by that. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's its the the triple-layered, like, turducken of meta-ness mm-hmm. that is these movies, you know, that then in the final installment, it was actually the half-brother yeah. she didn't know for, that she had, who's who is, mm-hmm. who's the literal film director who who somehow poisoned Billy's brain and, and, and stoked the fires of his cinematic mm-hmm. obsession. And, and really he was the puppet master all along. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh. it's, it's, it's like layers with it, you know, by the time you get to that point, you're like, Oh, it's like yeah. looking in the mirrors at a salon and you see all the, the, right. the reflections behind you. I, I do think that that reveal kind of, it blunts the impact of the first movie a bit. Like, yeah, it's it, very, it, yeah. I love it. Um, I don't love I it. don't either. Well, and that's like kind of that self-awareness I think we were talking about because what Billy, I think he, he probably has trauma from his mother leaving as well. And it's like that externalizing it onto a movie screen and like seeing like that's how he mm-hmm. is processing it is by understanding it through things that mm-hmm. happen to other people instead of what Sydney does is processes it in the pro in like throughout her right. own life you know i said i stumbled over all right. those words but like she's she's not trying to project it onto anybody mm-hmm. else she is just dealing with it now i think she to varying degrees handles it well because in the third movie we see how isolated yeah. she is mm-hmm. and that she has just completely shut everybody out even like going under another name but um and this is mike i think you brought up in an earlier episode like she works for a counseling oh, yep. line like she uses that to help other people and so i guess that might be kind of an externalizing mm-hmm. way but like just a healthier yeah, you know, way to I, do I, it. I sort of fell even in more love with sydney when i saw you know in, in the third movie when it's like she's doing a you know like her job is to be a a crisis Mm -hmm. counselor for abused women like I mean Mm -hmm. that's that's like a I think a healthy expression of of dealing with your trauma Mm -hmm. whereas isolating herself is the less healthy expression um so she even even Mm -hmm. in 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 a potentially unhealthy way of coping she's finding a positive outlet for her for her trauma um, mm-hmm. which makes me like her so much. And I think that that is the running theme throughout the movies is that whoever she loves gets killed, right? Like it starts with her mother. Mm-hmm. And then from there, it just blossoms like a poison blossom outward into everyone and down to Randy getting killed, and, you know, that that feeling. And then the killers are always saying like, oh, it's your fault, Sydney. It's your fault. And I think mm-hmm. that that externalizes something you see in trauma and that I've personally experienced in my own trauma is just that blaming yourself mm-hmm. for what has happened, um, it, it's it's it can be a, a really really loud voice in your head that is impossible to almost completely shut yeah. off. For me, it's I've learned to muffle it, but I it, I think it will always be there whispering in the back of my head. And so I, I really 
thought it was a good or an honest portrayal for Sydney. Mm-hmm. And she may decide I don't want romantic love in my life. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like that's like a fair thing for her to decide. I don't know how healthy that would be, but I, it's not my decision to make for her. But I think like I, I the ending of this movie, Scream 3, is just it makes me mm-hmm. cry every time mm-hmm. because just when she makes the choice to leave the door yes. open, I think I that, that was a really good volume. Perfect capper to the series. I yeah. couldn't agree it more. Is. And I'm looking at my old notes from when we covered um, the Scream quadrology on Pod and Pendulum, and I made a note like, this is perhaps like the most uh, uplifting ending to a, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, Wes Craven at the end of A Nightmare on Elm Street wanted Nancy to get in the, the, the convertible yes. with her friends and drive off, and that was the end of the movie. West... It was fucking Bob Shea. Right. It was Bob Shea. It was like, no, 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 we got to have a Bob, fucking like. Bob, Bobby Shea was like, I am leveraged eight way to Sundays to make this movie. We got to <laughs> make a sequel. To quote uh-huh. Stu, mm. there's got to be a sequel. Like Bob Shea, I think that might have been the <laughs> impetus for that. Bob Shea yes. in 1984, screaming in New Line Cinema, going to West. We gotta make a sequel with like spittle coming everywhere. You could have had a sequel without doing that <laughs> stupid ending. Could. He's a, you could have had a much more subtle mm-hmm. fucking door, leave, leaving yeah. the door open, as it were, yeah. to Freddy. Uh, God damn it, Bob um, But I, I do love the ending too. I, and I think it's yeah. such an earned ending. And you're right. It is. To, it's to very. It is. About, I love it. You know, to your to your point about maybe not having romantic love, like Officer McDreamy is not in Scream Four. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, she, you yeah. know, Sydney is pulling an Ann Perkins and she is dating herself after, you know, uh-huh. she's definitely, so we don't see anything. There's no mention of like, are there children in her life uh, and Scream 4? Right. So I think the opening to Scream 5, I know she's coming back for it. Scream 5 should be like Sydney reading her child a bedtime story, tucking her in, kissing him or her on the forehead grabbing a book and a glass of red wine, going to her front porch and reading, and then smash cut to Scream 5, and she's not in the rest of the movie, and then move on. And I'd, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'd be totally happy the, with that. for a, The reverse psycho, where they show up for only the first half of the movie, but mm-hmm. don't get killed. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I would love that, because like that that's a... She no. deserves that. I know. You know? I'm like, this and poor that's woman. the thing that... I know that, and that's the thing that's different about Scream than a lot of the other franchises mm-hmm. is that we see her suffer over right. and over and over again. It's not so much like Laurie, where we see her in the right. first two Halloweens, and then we don't see her again for twenty years. Like we keep seeing that happen, and I think there's a moment, like I think we imply that she and McDreamy are kind of into each other, but it's never mm-hmm. really like they never really have any kind of physical contact right. other than just when they're trying to save each other. And I think she, at one point, like even says, don't call me mm-hmm. Sydney or I will call you by your first name once right. we get past yeah. this. And I think, and now that I'm thinking about it, like the only time we see her be any more physical than just kissing someone is in the first movie when she mm-hmm. sleeps with mm-hmm. Billy, you know, and it could just be that she has drawn a lot of boundaries around this. And that is it's a very fair thing. Definitely for her that. And I think also just definitely like a shift in, what slasher movies were in the late 90s where there is yep. in mm-hmm. the 80s you went to slasher movies partly because there was going to be tna um and by like the late 90s you have like television actors and actresses that definitely have it in their contracts like i cannot show skin <laughs> yeah. but also exactly. I, mm-hmm. i've said this elsewhere the proliferation of being able to see nudity online 
made it like, well, I can see it anywhere already. I don't need to go to these movies for it. Well, so um, Alexandra West wrote a book Mm -hmm. about 90s horror, and she was one of the co-hosts of Faculty of Horror, which is one of my favorite shows. Um, And she talks about Sydney's um, decision to sleep with Billy in the first movie as a really empowering decision. And I think it Mm -hmm. is, especially considering like the final girls that we'd seen before where there's that kind of true or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. The virginal element. And that this is like her narrative and this is her movie and she is making it what she wants it to be. And I think it's it's a really empowering thing in the first movie. But I think the empowering thing in the third is to say, I don't want these romantic Mm -hmm. boundaries. Right. Mm -hmm. These are my romantic boundaries. And it's just interesting to see the way that can shift over time. And like one of the things that I have kind of had to really learn through a lot of like my triggers is a lot of my triggers are around touch. And I had to really pull Mm -hmm. back the boundaries really, really close because I think part of PTSD is just ignoring those Mm -hmm. warning signs Mm -hmm. when you see it. And like, this is what I'm supposed to do. So I just go along with it, which is where that, the feelings mm-hmm. check comes in like, Oh, this does make me right. feel bad. Um, and I just, I like seeing that represented book and I hadn't really thought about it mm-hmm. until we started talking about it, but she's not like, I don't know if she even kisses McDreamy. No, she doesn't. doesn't. She doesn't. And I think that's really great. Cause like, yeah, it's not wedging in this romantic relationship. It's like, they're two attractive people. There's definitely some chemistry there. Um, but they don't like force it down your throats and they let it happen on Sydney's terms, if at all. And I think, Mm-hmm. It's it's really nice to see a character that like she does have sex but she doesn't die but when she chooses she has sex on her own terms or doesn't mm-hmm. have sex on her mm-hmm. own terms is a really it's right. a really great to see that in a in a protagonist and yeah she, that's female she surprises Billy with offering herself up like he doesn't ask mm-hmm. her for it she he doesn't like it's the one time that he doesn't really pressure her for it um, mm-hmm. she says to him like well let's you know like let's go further and he's surprised by it um uh-huh. their plan was i think to kill her either way that night so the whole like yeah. oh, now you've mm. had sex and he was like oh, okay uh, yeah, bonus yeah but it it doesn't read the same way as in fright mm-hmm. night where charlie has stopped pressuring amy and then amy's like oh, okay i guess i'm ready for yeah. it now you know which is kind of like mm-hmm. i guess anti-pressure yeah. sydney has a lot more that, agency in all of the screen movies and just like how she confronts things like you see like there are in the first movie like there's points where she could have escaped at the end and she fights back and she turns the weapons Mm -hmm. of fear that have been turned on her against her attackers you hear her like take over the ghost voice ghost face voice you see her Uh don the suit actually and use that as a way to Mm -hmm. attack billy and Stu. in the second movie when the killer is trapped in the vehicle and out cold she can unfortunately it leads to the death of her friend um Mm -hmm. she could have easily gotten away and Uh instead she's like i need to go back and i need to face this head on because i will never Mm -hmm. much like laurie strode in h2o if i don't Mm. i was just gonna say that never stop running if i don't right now in scream three she doesn't show up really until about an hour and eight minutes into the movie and there's mm-hmm. no need for her to like she could just very easily say they don't know where i am they won't find me worst case i can move again um but mm-hmm. she faces the danger head on she's also mm-hmm. she also doesn't fall into the trap like we were talking mm-hmm. about in the descent with like um sally from texas chainsaw massacre and the sequel ends mm-hmm. up in a mental institution same thing with like hellraiser mm-hmm. and a lot of other final girls um 
she's closer to Nancy, another character, yes. you know, created by Wes Craven, who's yeah. like, mm-hmm. you know, she doesn't, she is traumatized and we're seeing the effects of that trauma, but it doesn't like, quote unquote, break her. Mm-hmm. She's not like, right. I just saw something so horrible that my hair tree, you know, that I went crazy. Right. Right. Like, you know, she's, she's still centered enough and strong mm-hmm. enough to turn back and like face her demons and and yeah. and help out her friends and that makes her she's a really really strong character well, what do both nancy and sydney have in common but after they face their trauma they take career paths that say i am going to be able to help others you know nancy mm-hmm. becomes mm-hmm. a hotshot grad school student and dream warriors <laughs> that you know can yes. do this crazy dream therapy but she is there to like help she she has faced the fire she's overcome her fear She's overcome her trauma and she's there to help lend a hand and literally pull people back from the abyss, much like, you know, and I don't think that it's, I think that like Wes Craven shows a tremendous amount of like respect and care and honor for the women in his movies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the reason I love his movies so much. Yeah, it sets them apart. And I tell you my favorite moment in Scream 2, the whole thing, is when she's fighting uh, with Timothy mm-hmm. Oliphant and he's like talking about Billy and she's like, you forgot something about Billy. I fucking killed him. I love him. that moment. I fucking I killed him. Too. Like, she's just so fucking I know. Like, I love her. And she's like naming it. She's like, yeah. I And it's like that moment in The Descent. She's like, yeah, I've been here before and I got through it and I can mm-hmm. get through it again. Mm-hmm. And I can help other people get through it too. And it just... Oh, it's so inspiring. Yeah, I need, I'm somebody who, who's so self-doubting and all this and feels weak as a result of things that have happened in my life or whatever. So when I see characters like that on screen, I'm like, it taps into like an anger and a resilience in me that I sometimes forget that I have. And it's really, mm-hmm. really gratifying for me to see characters like that represented on screen. And like, cause it reminds me, oh, well, no, I can get through this like you know and Mm -hmm. and like I don't know I I think that again that taps into why I like horror so much is like facing the fire and getting through Mm -hmm. it is something that I personally find really gratifying and 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 Mm -hmm. uh inspiring yeah well and there's there's two more things that I want to talk about um and I I kind of like I love the note I feel like we're ending on such an empowering note but I just want to point out how fucking triggering that musical would mm. have been for her like it's like that I know musical, it seems to me like it was designed to trigger her which I mean it was a movie so it was but and then there's the whole element of her being Cassandra who's like a character who speaks the truth and nobody believes mm-hmm. her, which I think is an interesting kind of little um, nod to just final mm-hmm. girl lore or final girl culture. But just th- I find myself so angry at her drama teacher every time mm-hmm. I watched Green. I know. Tears. Like, and why are you having a character that gets like stabbed to death? Maybe not the best character to her for her to play. Like- right. Also, stop making her say she's a mm-hmm. fighter. Like that was so performative and just really yeah. got under my skin. But then we see that in the third one too, where she goes to the set of her old house, which is just like really clear revisiting these re- like these triggering mm-hmm. moments. And I just thought that was so interesting. And I think the way Scream Three handles that right. is one of the stronger elements in the movie. And it's interesting yeah. seeing that, and it's like a warped funhouse version of it. Like obviously. There's like blood all over the house. It's obviously not the 
scene because we're three movies into the stab series now so it's obviously not the scene mm-hmm. from the first movie where she would have discovered her mother um and there's almost like a supernatural like, it, it, looking at the movie within the movie like stab three looks like they were introducing like supernatural elements into the movie overall mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. when you hear maureen prescott's voice in stab three she comes off kind of like a shrew like she's not sympathetic mm-hmm. um which I think, you know, given that, like, who the director of the movie of Stab 3 was, like, that makes sense. And him bringing, again, transferring his own neuroses and his own feelings about this mother that abandoned him mm-hmm. um, into, like, you know, his art at that point. And another, like, another that guy, I'm trying to think of his name now, Scott, I can't think of, like, the dude who... Scott, is it Foley, Scott Foley or the other who one? Plays, uh, no, Scott Foley, I think, is the other handsome dude from Felicity. Is he the one? <laughs> he's, yeah, the, he's the one in the werewolf movie, right? Yeah. This is Speedman? No, Speed Scott Speedman is the one in okay. Underworld. Okay. I think this might you be might Scott be Foley. Who are we talking about now? <laughs> I've got confused many, like, in the Roman Timothy, forest of Scott. Well, between like Timothy Oliphant and like McDreamy. Like, oh. oh. Joshua Jackson? Joshua. Just like how many of the hotties yeah. of that era. Who is like Joshua Jackson? He's kind of wasted in Scream too, right? He doesn't really. I know. He has like he a is. cameo, really. Yeah. It's Right. I do like that he talks about history's greatest mm-hmm. movie terminator yeah. too yes so yes <laughs> fun little shout out <laughs> um well so is there anything else we want to talk about as far as sydney or should we move on to other mental health topics i feel like we've covered everything that i want to discuss yeah. just i'll i'll cap it off by saying like sydney is a badass and i yeah. love her <laughs> yeah i do too absolutely um the again i think because of these movies are about sydney because they're not about even the Halloween series, like, isn't always about Laurie Strode. And right. I just think that these movies are all about someone who not only survives, but thrives. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't think well, she gets enough credit for how good she is. Nev Campbell, how good she is in these movies. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree. And I, I, I mean, I would say, I no, I don't enjoy seeing broken characters, you know, who have just been devastated by what happens to them. I think it's a it's a tempting theme to come back to in horror because it's it's a horrifying idea seeing something so awful that it completely devastates you and you'll never be the same. And I, I think that people use the phrase "you'll never be the same" to mean that you'll be broken, mm-hmm. but I think you get sure you you will never be the same after passing through no. the fire and devastation of a, a huge series of traumatic events. But mm-hmm. that doesn't mean you'll be like in an insane asylum in a straitjacket, just weeping openly mm-hmm. for the rest of your life. You just are a different mm-hmm. person, but maybe, maybe yeah. stronger for it. Again, I keep mm-hmm. going back to that cracks in the vase analogy thing. Yeah. But, I was thinking that you too. Know, it, yeah, yeah you'll, you'll have scars, you'll have cracks, but maybe you'll be stronger for them or maybe they'll just be a mark that you carry and that doesn't have a, a qualitative value assigned mm-hmm. to it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Sydney. I just love her. <sighs> well, so <laughs> um, so we want to talk briefly about some other mental health topics we see in this movie. Um, and because we've really limited this to Sydney, we also wanted to mention some other characters in this movie who exhibit signs of or would likely develop PTSD. We're not going to go into depth, but we want to mention these things when we see them. I just don't like letting these things go by without like kind of pinging mm-hmm. them because I feel like that's how you start mm-hmm. to normalize seeing this. Um and I've actually added a couple to my list as we um, 
have been talking about it. So I think Randy definitely, he exhibits PTSD. Mm-hmm. And Gail and mm-hmm. Dewey would too, although I don't think we see that yeah. as much. Um, but Maureen, for sure, although we never mm-hmm. see her, she would definitely. And I think we hear like that promiscuous behavior, I think a lot of that is tied to the trauma that we are we hear about i think cotton would have a lot of ptsd um sydney sydney likely would trigger him also and maybe that's kind of where that aggression is coming yeah, out yeah. you know he definitely um and i think the dad would like i i think we were talking about earlier he's kind of absent and i think you know his wife was murdered mm-hmm. too and i think that i imagine that would and be really hard everything to deal that with. went into that like the unfaithfulness the well, we're assuming uh-huh. it's unfaithful i don't think we're exploring uh polyamorous relationship <laughs> i don't think we're exploring <laughs> right they, they don't they yeah, know. not to say that they couldn't yeah. but they i don't think that like, was a theme that was right. intended to be in like, the script yeah. yeah dad never comes out and says like well Cindy, i was a cuckold you know like that's yes. never actually right. that's what i was into yes. and so that that'll which, be maybe that's what scream five right. is about which no kink shaming maybe your thing totally yeah, yeah. Cool. i mean if Go that's what it. you're into like i Go for I it. celebrate and applaud Live it your life um mm-hmm. i want to just mention that like dewey is never given the space to grieve the loss of his sister and i think i know that- no. I, can't, I forget yeah. that that rose mcgowan's character was meant to be his sister i like you know and then mm-hmm. it's like oh shit right. like they never explore that and i'm just thinking they don't of, like, yeah the horror that would come from like because her body is left hanging in that garage and, yeah like, it's one of the more brutal mm-hmm. deaths in the series yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I also wanted to mention, I don't know if this would technically fall under that category, but I wrote the audience for Scream Mm -hmm. 3 as kind of a PTSD type reaction because this happened so close. Scream 3 came out so close Mm -hmm. after Columbine, Mm. which was kind of an awakening. Like that happened my senior year in high school. And I remember just that changed a lot of things. That Buffy episode that wasn't allowed to air. Where they were yes, going to have God. the school shooter with Jonathan. Mm. Um, oh, yeah, um, yeah. So <laughs> the thing about Scream 3 is that it originally was envisioned as a much different movie in that it was going to bring back Stu. Um, Stu was going to be kind of the mastermind behind it. And some of the elements wind up in Scream 4 in that all of the teens that are killed in Scream, that would have been killed in Scream 3, are faking their own death a la like a movie like april fool's day and mm-hmm. the end of the movie was going to be sydney coming in on all their corpses stacked up and then them getting up um, oh god yeah and i think that is so much more of a, it's, it's, and it, it would have kept that same really dark tone of the first two movies and mm-hmm. after columbine an audible is made and most of the movie is reshot and it really it becomes a Scooby-Doo movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It becomes much more of a broad comedy. And you have like cameos by Carrie Fisher, where she really yeah. leans mm-hmm. into, yes, I look like Princess Leia. And she's just fucking awesome. She's like. And Jay and Silent Bob pop up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like... Yes. Yeah. Well, and we have like car chases and explosions, yeah. which is not like, that's like kind of more like um, mm-hmm. distanced violence, yeah. you know, compared to being stabbed yeah. in the chest. Mm-hmm. You know? And it just becomes like, much more of a whodunit. It almost feels like Clue in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. I could see um, that, yeah. They always mm-hmm. had a whodunit element yeah. to them, these movies, mm-hmm. but it does feel, it feels different. So. It has a different flavor. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although I got a, I love Parker yeah. Posey. So oh, yeah, I do love Parker. Yeah. I, I forgot. <laughs> I didn't write it in my notes, but I wrote it. I didn't write it in these notes, but my handwritten notes, I just wrote down the phrase, I love Parker Posey, because I was watching her like, I just love her <laughs> so much. 
Yeah. That's one of my favorite elements of the third one is just her and Gail yes. together. It's a, just, it's a bit of a... <laughs> Yeah, it does, I forgive yeah. that broad, broad all, <laughs> comedic element. All, it, <laughs> good, good, good. all it's missing is like Gail Weathers saying, "Like I'm too old for this shit." Basically, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, it's... side court. I did want to ask which Gail Weathers haircut is your favorite. First one, Ooh. Gail Weathers in part one is oh my god, Courtney Cox. <laughs> I mean, she's just a lovely woman. Anyway, yeah, but... she's, she's she is classically beautiful, yeah. really. When I, I think in these movies, I was studying her bone structure more, mm-hmm. and I was like, she's so delicate and bird-like. Mm-hmm. I, I love the red hair in two. Mm-hmm. I think that's my. Well, favorite. you know what? We're gonna even this out because I liked her hair in three. Excellent. Do you? Oh, you know how much shit her bangs have gotten. I know, over the but years? I love a baby bang. I will. I. I. Mm. I have had to force myself not to give myself baby bangs in quarantine so <laughs> no. many times because I took so long for me to grow them out. But I love a baby bang. Mm-hmm. I love long black hair. Mm. Mm-hmm. I do. I love her hair in four. Also, yeah. it's it's kind of like the longer like I don't know if barrel curls is a word, but it's it's love. She's great in all she four is. of them. Yes. All three, she's she's a, all three of your core members like david dark david arquette is every bit as as important i think he's to so that charming ensemble overall. he is mm-hmm. like he's just got this like mm-hmm. very rootable quality to him it's going to be interesting mm-hmm. to see how a police character is played in scream five given where mm-hmm. we are yeah. in society at this point yeah um yeah. And whether or I not mean, he's in that role anymore mm-hmm yeah I, I mean i hear that song do 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 you know and it just like it brings all the warm feelings one more up. sidebar because like you were talking the soundtrack especially the scream 2 scream 2 has the most bizarre cutaway to a song in any movie i've ever experienced you have sarah michelle geller who gets i think like the aside from maybe the opening scene she gets like the real it's the death of the movie like it's in a pro- oh my god it's scene. very intense it's really tense and mm-hmm. seeing this person who was like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, I know, get the shit beaten right. out of her and like thrown out of a window. And it's yeah. so brutal. Mm-hmm. And she's like tossed over the railing like a sack of garbage. And the mm-hmm. minute that like her body hits, it immediately cuts to like a, um, not Goldfinger. Um, oh God. What is so it? So much for the afterglow. Uh, Everclear. Oh, Everclear. Everclear, yes. It really (laughs) cuts to like a pop punk song by Everclear. It's like, this is the most Mm -hmm. inappropriate music cue (laughs) in the history of all time. The Slayer just died. I know, come on. And And where's where's Faith? And it's like, I know. know. I I know. And like, that's, I think those are those elements that made it make it feel so late 90s where like we couldn't even like resist like being a music montage right. moment in that at that moment yeah. like come on guys like i'm fucking ever right. incredible well let's talk about some of the other mm. mental health topics we see in this movie um i think we see billy and sydney have a toxic relationship i think billy there's a lot of narcissism mm. in billy also and then there is a sexual assault mm. that we hear described we don't see it but we hear it described in um scream three yeah, and I think I already covered my thoughts on that, mm-hmm. you know, so I won't get oh, I won't okay. get into all of that again except just just the fact that it, it I feel like it's not given the the space it needed. I think when you invoke mm-hmm. a sexual assault in a script, you always should be like really careful that you're you have the time to 
address it appropriately like you know uh-huh. and, it, and it feels like a weird right like uh, plot driving forward element uh-huh. like what's i feel like it's a uh i think there's some word for that term and like a MacGuffin, yeah. a MacGuffin or something but right you know but yeah the phrase four ways to sunday has always it's just, just like oh like, like god i hate no. it you know and i get that it's that character describing it like lance henriksen mm-hmm. playing the the slimy producer but it's still Not just you know i don't they they sort of let him give his speech and then they don't respond to it at all and you're just kind of like okay i guess we're just being left with his perspective on the situation uh, right. I just I do not like it. Um, it but... feels like it's not even being described as a sexual assault by Lance Henriksen, but him mm-hmm. saying like she knew what happened. Yeah, she knew what she was getting she knew into. What happens at these parties if mm-hmm. she wanted to get ahead? This is what she needed to do, and she just couldn't handle it. It wasn't that she was sexually assaulted; it was that she couldn't mm-hmm. do the things that she needed to do in order. It's like if you want to be a pro basketball player, you shoot for like six hours a day. Well, if you can't do that, you can't be a pro basketball player. It's like it felt like if you want to be an actress, you need to be able to handle these parties and you just couldn't do it. Not that you were assaulted. Mm -hmm. And it feels like that those lines were basically like Harvey Weinstein taking the script, crossing out whatever was there and putting his own dialogue in, which is something we know the Weinsteins did in their movies. Mm -hmm. And people like and Rose I, McGowan have spoken out extensively about how they, I mean, uh-huh. and you know, and uh, you know, she's talking about being in Scream mm-hmm. because that was her big yeah. breakout role, mm-hmm. you know, and like, that's just an unfortunate legacy tied to a really Great lovely movie. franchise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. just, ugh, I, I, you know, and it makes me so mad. And I think that maybe I got sidetracked slightly mm-hmm. knowing the actual things that played out, you know, and, mm-hmm. I, and yeah. I found it more jarring than I might and have otherwise. But not even yeah. just sexual assault with the Weinsteins. I'd say to our listeners, go back and find the horror queers episode on Cursed with um, Kevin Williamson, where he talks mm-hmm. extensively about his history and having to deal with the Weinsteins, and in particular, like Bob Weinstein, who I think skates by on a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's like this whole toxic culture uh, of Hollywood in that time, and I, I think that that's, I think there's a, a horror movie that explores that in a really fun, well, I don't know, to me fun, but in an interesting way is Starry Eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know mm-hmm. if you guys have seen it's that. It's movie. one of the more, I seen it. yeah, it's great. Awesome. It's I love that movie, and it's, mm-hmm. it's one of the more grotesque like movies I can remember mm-hmm. thinking. But I, it's the kind of body horror that I enjoy, mm-hmm. um, and it's all about like a young ingenue actress and what she has to do to get ahead yeah. in Hollywood, and uh, it's mm-hmm. it, but it, it's it's really an interesting mm-hmm. movie. Well, I want to say, too, I found an article that I'm going to link that is all about Maureen's Mm -hmm. um, story. So like because we're not we're not going into as much detail as I think we probably could, Mm -hmm. because I mean, I could talk about that for an hour. Yeah, we could do a whole episode Um, on that, really. Like. And, you know, maybe we will <laughs> someday. <laughs> yeah. There, um, but I will link that there's article. There's also, like, queer representation in the first screen movie between Billy and Stu and what is, like, the hints yeah. of, like, um, an unrequited romantic relationship. And I know when I started mm. my first horror blog back in the late aughts, like in 2009, there was a queer horror blog called Billy Loves Stu, that was based mm-hmm. all on the idea of mm-hmm. like that unrequited love between them. I watching this movie, I always read it as Stu loves Billy. Like, yeah, he was like, yeah. the, I mean, there was yeah. like a power dynamic mm-hmm. there. And I felt like Stu is the one that was, and Billy was just kind of yeah. like singularly obsessed with revenge. Yes. But I definitely read like a, a right. sexual chemistry between them. Mm-hmm. 
Like they're hmm. t- the way they touch each yeah. other, and they're always like re- like really having to operate intimately mm-hmm. to pull off this yeah. whole murder. It's a very like twisted mm-hmm. kind of romance thing to it. Yeah. Um, well, so let's move into um, where else we see PTSD represented. What other movies we see this in? We're not going to go into depth, but we just wanted to mention them in case you're just jonesing for more PTSD representation. Um, I mentioned Heather's, and it's not necessarily as much PTSD, although I do think that's an element there, but just kind of this um, this kind of toxic um, friendship kind of thing. And the same with Tragedy Girls. I added that in as we were talking about um, things related to Scream 4 and just kind of this mm-hmm. victim cult, you know, or victim mentality. Um, and the Haunting of Hill House I brought up when we were talking earlier about um, being together against trauma. And I was just recently rewatching that. And the thing that stuck out with me so much was when a character has sleep paralysis oh my God. and her husband is, um, wakes up and he's like, okay, here's what we do. That's and the- just seeing them, like seeing her support her in that moment, yeah. it just it- the way, the way that I'm sorry, I get, I get really <laughs> worked up when I think about this. Cause that whole, that whole arc for that character and the way that how, what ends up happening uh. with the husband and all that, like it, Mm-hmm. I used to have sleep paralysis when I was a little girl also. It was like something oh, really? that plagued me when I was like very young in a early teenage mm-hmm. years. And so like the way they depict it in that show is so accurate and yeah. like ah, I just it's it's very intense. Ugh. It's one of the 15 times I cried my eyes out watching that show. I have rarely I, that show made me cry harder than anything in recent memory. Mike Flanagan, mm. man, when he fucking makes you cry, oh, he makes you cry. He does, yeah. And um, spoiler, he's going to make you cry and blind. Oh my god, I can't well. wait to see it. I can't wait. <laughs> oh my god, I just about had a nervous breakdown in the last episode in a good way. Yeah, but yeah. Um, anyways, um, and then it follows is one mm. I know I noted, and that's when we were talking about the ending and just her making the choice to open up to another person. Like I think I, I don't love it. Follows there are some things that I have conflicting views on, but I do really love where that movie ends. So those yeah. are the ones that I, I love saw. That movie. I absolutely adore It Follows. Um, I'd be curious to hear, have a conversation with you, Jenna, yeah. but I really love it as well. I'm curious what you, yeah. I, anyway, sidebar, yeah. we'll have a conversation about that. So I, I mentioned this movie, I think in the uh, Halloween episode we did, um, Last Girl Standing. It starts at the end of a slasher movie where you have this character that like is the final girl and she survives, but then it follows the trauma that follows her. There's a new Bray Grant movie that is out or coming out. Oh, yes. Lucky. It's so where good. I've, like, heard, I've heard about it. But... Where like she's basically mm-hmm. assault. It's like Groundhog Day, except she's like stalked every night. Um, and no one so really good. believes or pays it. Or they know what's happening, but choose to ignore it. Um, yeah. Sleeping with the Enemy <laughs> with Julia Roberts, I think like... I Someone that, that kind of retreats, you know? I mean, it's a cheesy 80s mm-hmm. thriller. Um Oh, it's so I love good, a cheesy though. '80s thriller. Yeah. It's like the best. Yeah. Uh, and Cape Fear, the Martin Scorsese psychological mm. thriller, with you have mm-hmm. Nick Nolte's character um, having to. No one's really believing, or people are aware of what's going on, but really can't help him, and he's like getting more and more paranoid that like all this person's like ruining his life, and you see like in Scream, someone actively not just trying to kill Sydney, but trying to ruin her life before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Laura, which are so? What are some of the movies that you see PTSD represented in? Um, 
there's a few that I, I thought of that are a little left of center in terms of like the representation isn't the central thing in the movie. But um, mm-hmm. the first one is I'm going to call it as the love witch, which I would love to do mm-hmm. an episode on. Um, yeah. The, the, I, I have really mixed feelings about the director, Anna Biller, because she has really stepped in it in terms of social media and some of the shit that she said. Mm-hmm. But her movies are she's also just like to me a completely insane auteur. Uh, and the love witch has elements of of PTSD with the main character. You could also use that movie for narcissism, for um, discussing mm-hmm. uh, all sorts of stuff. And it's a, it's all it's a very uh, look up the trailer if you haven't seen it. If you it, she is highly stylized and does pastiches mm-hmm. to classic cinema. Um, yep. in that movie, there's a lot of witch representation in that yes. movie too, which I appreciate. And it's to me, it's a really interesting take on on gender relations and um, mm-hmm. and just what some of these traumas how they can manifest and and how anyway i'm uh, I, i'm, I'm going to cut myself off cuz i will keep going <laughs> um on a completely different note is let us pray a little indie scottish horror film that i just am obsessed mm-hmm. with and it has the mm-hmm. guy that plays like davos seaworth yeah, in game of thrones as the devil Liam Cunningham and he's like so hot in this movie and the main character has undergone a horrible horrible trauma um and she is now a cop and it's and then there's like a very bad night happens and it's an interesting movie and then there's silence of the lambs i i started thinking mm-hmm. about sydney and clarice mm-hmm. and um mm-hmm. as kind of you know and and sydney is very motivated by the death of her mother and clarice is very motivated by the death of her father um and then what happens in the wake of have losing her father and not really having a parental guardian and um, living on this farm with these lambs and all this. And that kind of plays into her whole character's motivations. And I was thinking about how in the Jonathan Demi movie, um, you're seeing her flashbacks to her father's funeral and how she sort of is actually triggered in these moments. And when something really bad happens to her in the mental institution, and then she's walking to the parking lot and you're seeing these flashbacks that she's experiencing as maybe not full on PTSD flashbacks, but definitely more than just memories um and yeah it's like some a connection i had never made before and it seems really strange because they're two mm. very totally different movies but i was like oh shit there's actually some common threads there i can see that that's interesting i hadn't thought about that before mm-hmm. um and i mean i just love that movie yeah yeah it's still um, a masterpiece and clarice yeah. yeah it really is um so let's move into our uplifting moment Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about Scream, so I think it's appropriate. Um, so life is pretty stressful right now, and we've talked about some hard things. So we want to make sure we're leaving you feeling a little bit better as you continue with your day. Um, and we've been talking about this, so I'm not going to go into as much detail about it. But I just want to reiterate that there is no right way to do self-care. Um, it can be anything that makes you feel good or feel better. It doesn't have to be a massage or an hour of meditation, although those are both fantastic. But we know they're not available to everyone or won't necessarily be what everyone needs. And your self-care might shift depending on the day. We just don't want to ever attach any kind of judgment or expectation to self-care because it is supposed to make you feel good. Um, so let's just kind of quickly go around and share any self-care or any grounding and coping techniques that we've been using or that have been helping us. Um, Laura? Do you want to start? Sure. I bought a bunch of cheap Halloween lights, and my living room is now oh. covered in them. <laughs> I, I mean, I, my my apartment is pretty small, so it's like my living room kitchen area, but it's like the main area of the apartment, and therefore I didn't have a ton of 
square footage to cover in lights, but I mm-hmm. did put up as many as I, as I could afford to purchase. <laughs> and, <laughs> and like some, I got some goofy, like a uh, little, little tiny mini jack-o'-lantern pumpkins that are like metal. And I got those led candles mm-hmm. that flicker the little tea lights mm-hmm. and I put them in there and I put the little tea lights everywhere. So everything is like flickering orange light. And I just sat around watching horror movies yesterday Beautiful. and, um, it just, it's Aww. good vibes. <laughs> And they're not lovely. coming down <laughs> after yeah, Halloween. Yeah. Those are staying up for until I see fit. Mm-hmm. So we, I talked a bit before about like, this is more for others, like strength-based counseling or strength-based discussions. Mm-hmm. And just like can't like, come up with a number of different questions you're going to ask. Like, and strength isn't just like, how much do you bench, bro? Like we're talking about like <laughs> inner strength. And for the record, about 275. Uh, anyway, oh, so uh, at my peak, probably not <sighs> anymore. I can not do that anymore. I used to also lift weights and right now I'm so out of shape that I don't even want to talk <laughs> about it. <laughs> we were discussing whether or not to teach, to tell a like, to say, Ada, you know about Santa, right? Like there's only one fat dude with a lung beard that delivers presents in this house. This guy. Um, <laughs> But it's like what, so some ideas to like think about your strengths and I'll ask our listeners to maybe kind of like think about this yourself for a couple minutes. And I'm just going to give you like three of these topics right now. So some of our strengths are very obvious to us and some of them go unnoticed. You can kind of spot your invisible strength by noticing the things that energize you. Think about the past week. When did you feel the most energized and what strengths were you using at that time? Think about your favorite hobbies or activities. What is it about these activities that you enjoy? How do these activities put your strengths to your to put your strengths to use? And finally, and there's a lot of different questions here, but I'll just do three today. We'll make it easy. <laughs> Imagine a time that you felt like you were at your best. Think about what you were doing at that time. What about that situation made you feel confident? Compare it to a time that you felt uneasy or weren't confident. And what were the key differences there? So those are some of the things you can do to start looking at what are the things that make me strong? What are the things that I bring out in times of success? And how can I use them in times of adversity? Um, because I do think that like a lot of our coping skills in one area are transferable to other areas in our life. Mm-hmm. I like that yeah. a lot. I think it's I do too. just when, when I feel at my worst, mm-hmm. I sort of am incapable of remembering the yeah. times that I felt strong or confident. Mm-hmm. So it's a good thing to reflect yeah. on when you're feeling down. Yeah. And I will, I, I think I might post that in our Facebook okay. group also. Cause I, you know. Um, because I like having those things ready. Like Corey Mm -hmm. got me this deck of affirmations, Mm -hmm. um, for Christmas last year. And I just keep them on my desk. And when I can remember, and I'm feeling really down, I just kind of look at it and it just kind of helps to have that kind of stuff in your back pocket. The thing that I've been doing, and I I did it a while ago, but I think I've been really kind of leaning on it recently is on social media. Um, because I, I just, I can't avoid it like there are certain things like as like part of my writing like I need to share and it's like there's an there are a lot of benefits I see with social media and Twitter um and so like sometimes when it starts to really get to me it's not always an option to just like take it off my phone or just ignore it all day um 
But one of the things that I did is I follow um, some funny accounts. Like I follow Jurassic Park updates and I follow um, The Onion, which I know, Laura, you said you've written for The Onion before, right? Yeah, I'm, right? A, I'm a contributor. So I, I submit headlines most weeks and most of them get rejected. But occasionally one oh. will sneak through. I, I only contribute to the podcast right now called The Topical. So. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah. Um, well, and I follow Reductress also, which is kind of a similar one. Um, and I saw a fucking tweet that I have been laughing at for four days just because of the phraseology there. And I, I don't want to spoil it because you kind of have to see it. Um, but like those accounts kind of take me out and they are like sorrow scopes is another oh, I write one for sorrow kind of, scopes do you really yeah. <laughs> I'm one of the writers for that <laughs> oh that's so yeah, awesome yeah it's a, run I by this it. guy Victor Weintraud who's um I'm blanking on his his handle all uh, but he's so funny and he's the like mastermind behind that and then there's a bunch of us including Mel Cassell of Losers Club mm-hmm. uh oh, right, yeah? is one of the sorrow scopes writers also <laughs> yeah yeah oh that's awesome I, I love that I haven't written anything and in it, a while but I love that account yeah it's it's great and it just kind of like takes me out of like the the direness or the like just stress about like how do I respond in the right way and on Instagram I follow a lot of Nat Geo accounts where it's just like these really pretty nature pictures um if you follow me on Instagram I post a lot of that stuff in my stories because if I see something that just really soothes me um I just like to put it out there um and I read some article a long time ago that like proximity to like the ocean or like a picture of the ocean or a sound of waves or something is calming, even if it's not the actual ocean. Um, and also interior design, I think really is kind of soothing to me. Same. Um, kind of the same way a lot of people do like animal pictures. Um, mm-hmm. So, and just having the presence of those, I think keeps my feed kind of from being all doom and gloom and anxiety. And so that really kind of helps me when I, um, when it starts to feel overwhelming, but I can't check out. Also, there's a mute key, and I have been using that a lot because. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Some people on like I, like I saw right. one too many unmasked weddings, and I was just like somebody throwing a huge wedding for them and their extended family, and not acting. Mm-hmm. And I just was like mute, and then like a lot of things of that nature right. lately. I'm just like, nope, can't handle it. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna get right. pissed at you constantly, so I'm just gonna mute you. And that's that's just setting boundaries, you know, and what I love is that you can mute things for specific time periods like there was an event that happened and I kept seeing this name that kept coming up that was very triggering and I just muted that name for 14 days and then it hasn't been an issue since then. Well, and on that note, (laughs) um, so that's what we've been doing, but we want to hear from you. Um, What is your current self-care? What other movies do you see PTSD represented in? And just kind of generally, what are your thoughts and experiences about the Scream franchise? And what do you think about what we said? Like, we we really want this to be a conversation. We want to hear from you. And we're starting to see that, which makes me really happy. Mm -hmm. Um, Before I tell you how to share those answers, we also have a homework question for this episode. and Mike, this was yes. your question this week, which I'm really digging. What is everyone <laughs> doing to get in the mood for spooky season? It's been a big form of my self-care. It's like mm-hmm. doing Halloween things, watching different horror movies, making our props, doing the yard, going into the street to collect our tombstones that have all blown away. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that will learn me. Um, 
<laughs> Do you think your neighbors might see that as some kind of no. threat if they wake up and there's a tombstone <laughs> in their yard? Up, <laughs> plastered against their they window. They all ended yeah. up in our neighbor's yard who's in her 90s. And it was kind of oh. like, she, oh, no. I think she uses, it, she uses it opportunity to kind of shop for what's ahead. She's like, I like this one. Oh, this, no, this God. Nice. So, yeah, I would love to be 90 years old and look out the window and then just yeah. see that the gravestones have come to me, yeah. you know? It's just so, right, exactly. Um, but oh, wow. yeah, we have um, put up like the cauldron and we are going to be redoing some things that, you know, we're still kind of like still building out. I haven't done anything inside the house yet, although by the time you hear this, it will be done in the house. But we've just mm. been making props outside and kind of having some fun with it so it's been kind of nice but what are you mm. listeners what are you doing to get in the mood for halloween season which is it's different this year there's really yes you know it is. i would be going yeah. i would be packing this week to go to tell your right horror and hosting out there not doing that and we year. might be in salem yeah. for a salem horror fest but yeah instead we just recorded it on zoom yeah, yeah and if you yeah. have photos send us photos i love seeing yeah. everyone's halloween yes. stuff mm-hmm. i think that like sammy and michael rothman posting all those photos is what mm-hmm. inspired me to like buy a bunch of halloween lights because their yeah. house looks mm-hmm. so cozy so yeah mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, and you can share all of those answers with us on Twitter and Instagram at psycho a pod, or you can join one of our private Facebook groups. Um, there's the psychoanalysis podcast support group. Um, that's the one where we will post the specific prompts and questions of the day. Um, and there's also the psychoanalysis, a horror therapy fan psychoanalysis a horror therapy family and that is a listener created group filled with just both groups are filled with really amazing and supportive and awesome people whom we love Um, i personally really do love you (laughs) i do too um both of those are private and moderated also and we really want them to be a safe place to talk about some of these harder issues and if that is still too public for you you can email us at psychoapod at gmail.com um if you want to share something with us more privately so what is up next for us um we hope you enjoyed our very first comfort horror episode um we're going to start doing those every other week in between the more issue focused episodes like this one um and next up we're going to be talking about some of my absolute favorite comfort horror we're going to be talking about the simpsons treehouse of horror um i know i'm so excited my childhood in a in a bottle (laughs) Oh my gosh, yes. I've got some very strong memories from these shows. Um, Justin Gerber from Halloweenies is going to be joining Yay. us for that one, so I'm super excited about that. Um, and we're probably not going to mention every single episode because there are like 30 <laughs> million at this point. Um, no. So like, don't look at this as like homework. Like if you don't watch all of them, we're going to spoil yeah, them for you. Just, you know, and you for can't lots really of spoil reasons. them, you know. These are more like exactly. gag-based things and stuff. So- Right. But we're probably going to be talking about our favorite segments and our favorite episodes. Um, So make sure to join us for that. I cannot Mm -hmm. wait to talk about these these shows. Um, We are a member of the Consequence Podcast Network. They have many wonderful pods. um, So make sure to check them out. You can find them all at consequenceofsound.com, along with a lot of other pop culture content and reviews. And... um, if you want to, you can leave us a review um, on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Um, yeah, we really appreciate I, I, the reviews we've gotten so far. A bunch of folks <laughs> left us uh, us reviews, and uh, it really warms my heart just to see that people are listening and give a shit, let alone it really want does. to take the time to give us a review, and it's it's great. 
Yeah, I didn't actually script that part out because I just have so many <laughs> feelings about it. It just makes <laughs> I'm so grateful for everybody who reached out and did that. And I also want to say, like, that also, there's some kind of algorithm that Apple has. So a review, like, especially for smaller pods, even mm-hmm. if you search for the direct name of the show, sometimes it won't pull the show up. So, like, the more ratings and reviews you can have, like, it really helps people yeah. find the pod. And I know people say that a lot, but it's actually true. Mm-hmm. Um, so as much as it just makes us feel good, like, if you think that our podcast is something that other people would enjoy and you want to help other people find it that's i I would look at it akin to like when you would go to the record store and if you were a fan of a certain band you would say if you like the bow evils you might also like screeching weasel and naked ray gun and calling out some of my chicago boys over here chicago (laughs) punk rules all right chicago is pretty i should introduce you to my friend chris please do please do but it's essentially what will happen is like we will appear next to similar themed podcasts and it gives persons Mm -hmm. a chance to kind of take a chance on us um and we appear Mm -hmm. more and more um there are days when you look at like the work that goes into doing these shows. It's not just sitting down and like hitting record and talking for two hours. Like it's yeah. a job almost that like you, mm-hmm. um, when you see someone react in a really positive way, you're like, all right, that's why we're doing this again. Exactly. Yeah. Doing right. it for the kids. And I will also say like, rate and review the other podcasts that you love too. Like we don't want you to don't just do it for us, you know, do it for, and I, you know, I give a lot of reviews and ratings to the, the shows that I love because I just know it means a lot and it goes a long way. So, um, well, Mike, where can we find you on hiding under my desk? Uh, um, <laughs> right now you can find me in the home office. Um, you can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian. That's uh, my personal account over on Twitter. Um, I'm really not taking any more friends on Facebook. I'm actually trying to delete people that I don't interact with, but you can talk to me in all the groups. I'm more than happy to talk to anyone there. And there are some really lovely people, um, both physically and Mm -hmm. spiritually in our groups. Like you are a (laughs) bunch of beautiful people. Um, I am a troll. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, also, you can find me, and it's actually in the group, someone said, oh, yeah, I keep forgetting to check out your other show, like, listeners. I'm telling you right now, like, I'm going to brag a little bit. If you're not listening to The Pod and the Pendulum, you're missing out. This show is, we're doing <laughs> some of our best work right now. I, I really strongly feel that. Mm-hmm. Um, they got pods. They got pendulums. Got, what more do you want? Um, I know. <laughs> so we are doing some great work over there. You're going to hear me in Halloweenies in the month of November. Um, Finally. Yeah. Be defending <laughs> Jason Goes to Hell, which is one of my favorite entries <laughs> in the franchise. <laughs> because someone besides Mike Vanderbilt has to do it. Um, he'll be glad to have you follow me in all those areas Um, if you're going to if you're doing any film festival things I would suggest do Telluride Horror Um, that's where I'm one of the hosts and I just did a few Q&A's today for like an Evil Dead documentary and a couple other movies that are appearing at the festival and they're really fun spirited Q&A's with some very lovely Canadian folks who are so much more nice and well grounded and well they have less to be stressed about really right now than us, so. that's true yeah. <laughs> yeah. They really also do. if you're from canada or any other country and want to marry me 
Please do. <laughs> yeah. The end. I'm signing off. <laughs> I'm going to come stay with you and your new husband, yeah, Laura. You, I'll adopt you. Yeah, yay. Um, well, Laura, where can we find you aside from Canada? <laughs> One can hope. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, at Underalls on Twitter, U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-S, like your little little G-strap that you wear <laughs> and that goes up over your lowrider jeans. Um I'm sorry. I mean that we did talk about 90s. Yeah, I was gonna today, say I think I that's like why I had I had the low cut jeans in my in my brain because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh the bane of, the of boots my with the, fur. the bane of my youth. Yeah, boots with them for um with them for you know what? Just <laughs> fucking kill me. Oh. Uh that's where you can find me is in the grave after this, after I throw myself <laughs> in out of humiliation. The uh, tombstones have blown into your yard yeah, at this finally, point. Finally. <laughs> I've been waiting. Um and you can also find me on Instagram at Instaglum, like Instagram, but deeply sad and sometimes I'm on Losers Club and Halloweenies also but not recently actually no I was just on Losers Club we talked about our Halloween costumes that was a oh that's right that's a yeah. Patreon episode so you have to pay to hear about my childhood <laughs> yeah um I was on that one too yes, that, was, that fun. was fun um yeah I told some very embarrassing stories about me just getting very drunk <laughs> um <laughs> you can also find me on the Losers Club um and I'm going to be on Halloweenies coming up, too. Um, just today, I recorded the episode on um, Jason Takes Manhattan, which was a first-time watch for me, and that movie is insane. <laughs> well, <laughs> I know. I mean, I, don't, I won't spoil my, my ranking, but um, so that should be up on the 13th of this month. Um, and, yeah, so you can find me on the Losers Club and here and writing for Consequence of Sound. Um, so now... It's time. Oh, Ed, fuck. It's time to fuck. All right. It's Let time to fuck, man. Every single Let time. You can also find me. I mean, those are the rules. You you know, know? We didn't say what you had to fuck. Just say it's time to fuck. That's true. <laughs> um, you can find me at on socials at Jen Ferratu with two ends. <laughs> One of these days, man. I'm just going to write it all down. Um, Well, it's that time for me to completely also fuck up our sign-off, which is becoming a recurring theme. And she did write that down, folks. She did write for me to completely fuck up her sign-off. She doesn't want to get the sign-up correct, but she wants to... I don't. She she wants to not fuck up the intro to fucking up the sign-up. I love it. I I know. It's levels. I mean, that's just like my... That's where my brain's at, you know? Um, Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about Sydney. I had so much fun talking about her because I just love her so much. Um, Guys, nope, not guys. Folks. Y'all. Folks, (laughs) we came here to chew bubblegum and take care of ourselves. And guess what, guys? (laughs) And guess what? (laughs) Just take that part from the top. I know. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to take words out of your family. I know. It's, okay. it's fine. Nobody, it'll, it'll forgive you if it happens. <laughs> so we came here to chew bubblegum and take care of ourselves. And we are all, all out of bubblegum. Bubble <laughs> <laughs> got through it. <sighs> Bye, everybody. We did, man. <laughs> Bye. I think we got it right that time. Oh, man.
Consequence Podcast Network.